0: a Good old boy never meaning
1: no harm. Beats all you never saw been in trouble with the law since the day they were born.
0: Good old boys. I'm Mark Bog Beef, and tonight we're joined by amateur historian writer Carrie.
2: Hi, um thank you for having me on.
0: Excellent. How are you doing tonight?
2: I'm doing good. How are you, guys?
0: Doing good. I, no reason. I don't normally ask that, but I know, I'm trying to uh be on my manners because I, I think you're from from Massachusetts and uh people from Massachusetts are 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 world renowned for being assholes. <laughs> uh,
3: assholes? Oh
0: yeah, asshole. <laughs>
3: Uh, are you from Massachusetts? I, I don't buy the amateur historian thing. Everybody who says they're amateur historian tend to have ex- extreme levels of historical <laughs> knowledge. It's always the other way. Like somebody who says, "Like oh yes, I have a PhD," and it's like they don't know anything. But people are like, "Oh yeah, I dabble a little bit in history." You know, I've well, you, you know the you know the meme right? There's a meme phrase for
0: that that is a uh, historian here, and that is always like uh, the biggest piece of shit in the world is always you know. Flash that. Are you from Massachusetts? I am from
2: Massachusetts. Uh, yep, I've always oh, lived, yeah. lived there. And um, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of great historians <laughs> who are professional and a lot of great historians who are amateur. Uh, <laughs> you can't really tell from the status um, how knowledgeable they're going to be.
3: Are you a Mayflower person?
2: No, I am not. I should probably make that clear up front. Um, as far as I know, I don't have any um, ancestry going back to Boston Brahmins, or anything like that. Um, I'm mostly... Uh, uh, my recent ancestors are, are ancestors are almost all of recent European immigrants, Catholics. So, um, yeah. And from Nova Scotia also.
3: This interview is over.
0: <laughs> Spoiler alert, Mer- Merrick, you're, you're spoiling <laughs> the show. So, uh, I, I want to start out like, uh, the reason we're doing this interview is, uh, I saw your stuff on Twitter and I, I've been following you forever and I didn't remember why I, I was reading your stuff and I was like, Okay. There's a question that I've been like semi obsessed. We've been we've been semi obsessed with. We've had we've had Michael Lind. We've had uh, we've had huge people on the show and like literally like uh, not to you know be to plug their book or whatever, but like uh, hey, can you come here and I'm gonna ask you this question? And I've asked all these brilliant people this question, and I asked and I asked you this question, and you just destroyed me. I mean, I was I was I I, I was it was the best. So. Let me ask you, does the wasp still exist?
2: It's kind of a tricky thing to explain, um, tricky question. As far as I can tell, um, and this is kind of what I've thought about um, after just looking at it from a bunch of different angles as part of my historical research, um, is that the concept of a wasp is, is fairly misleading, um, or especially the way most people understand it. Um, it. The purpose of that narrative took me a while to understand, um, and I think there's multiple things going on there, but basically the class in the 20th century, the ruling class in the 20th century, which most members of which, yes, were, um, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, um, were a different group than, for example, the, the Boston Brahmins, that the people you would think as the real American elites that Um, there's the I don't think there's as much continuity there as many would imply Um, it seems like that became a name uh, which didn't even that term didn't surface until I don't know the 50s or 60s I think Um, and it was it was a way to summarize kind of the newer I'd call it like the newer money um, elite that had arisen that was more national and also was mixing with um, a more managerial elite or something like along those lines. Um, it was just...
0: Like yuppie, yuppie-ish?
2: Yeah, it was, it was, it, 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 there were f- several different groups and it depends on what part of the 20th century you're looking at. Um, but but the point is they were not the like hereditary elite of different regions from colonial times that you look in the 20th century. It's a little bit different, but there was just a a different class that arose or set of classes that had different, um, institutions, different roles to fulfill this new, uh, kind of national elite demand. um, and with these new like kind of managerial structures, um, and this was different than what you had before, which was a few regional kind of hereditary elites, um, from colonial times who had more, uh, I guess you'd say a pre-modern, um, approach and having looked into this like my take on it is basically that um the as the country was modernizing and diversifying during the over the course of the 20th century um these older families while retaining some power were just not able to keep up in the same way or their functions weren't really needed in the same way and they and so this group of kind of uh, like new money like managerial class
0: i want to uh, summarize to get people up to that family part. So suggest anyone just listen to any of the other stuff we did about wasp. But to summarize really quickly, I'll, I'll go through the little wasp onion. So you should be if you're listening to this, you should be past the whole thing. So wasp stands for White Anglo-Saxon Protestant. So obviously, me and America are White Anglo-Saxon and Protestant, but we're not who is meant in that. So you should know mm-hmm. that it's it's more than that. Now you go next level if you've seen movies or. Or just i don't know american folklore you'll think of um people wearing abercrombie and fitch they're a bit taller (laughs) they live in new england they go to uh uh what's what's that damn island um nantucket um they wear uh what's the brand with the little little whale the cute whale thing um
1: (laughs)
3: um, i I don't know I, i wouldn't uh I know
0: the alligators. I know, and the cost. but I don't. <laughs> vineyard Vineyard Vines. Yeah, you know Vineyard Vines, Carrie.
2: Uh yeah. No, you say it.
0: Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But 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 uh, sorry, hang on. So okay, uh, there, there's they they wear Vineyard Vines. They play polo and they go to school in New England, etc. That's that's the other wasp. But now the that what you're talking about, there's another level. So which is which would be called the Boston Brahmin i don't understand why no one talks about this but this is literally we're talking about uh like an american aristocracy of of families and et cetera. sorry go ahead
3: mary like you know she i think she kind of the term wasp she just said, she just told you this really like began being used in in the 50s and 60s right that you meant the 1950s and 1960s yes, right yeah yep. mm-hmm. right so like you when, I, this is what I've been complaining about you conflating the wasp and the Brahmin because they're not, like you use them like like they're synonyms but they're not like the whole point of the term wasp is that it was like oh well, we need to, we need a word for like everybody who was here before uh, Ellis Island and like so they did that and that's what and that's what wasp means it's not Boston <laughs> Brahmin like they, they're they're two they're two completely distinct things like so like yeah we are we are actually wasps if you're if if you're if like you are founding stock american or whatever like you're you're a wasp that was all of the, but the you you think you think that the like the actual like the boston brahmin imagine if you called them that they would i mean uh you could
2: the thing to understand I, my understanding is that when that ter- term was coined it was specifically to refer to a certain elite class not all Old stock Americans, in part, because these are all like post hoc terms. Like even old stock Americans is a weird um, concept in the fact that only certain regions had like these elites, and they didn't get along. (laughs) Like so, like it wasn't like there was like much cohesion back then Mm -hmm. either. So it's kind of like all of these terms oversimplify and there's a bunch of different groups that are getting conflated here and, and, and people mean different things by it. But my understanding is the reason that term was coined originally was to talk about the kind of 20th century um, elite, which was a hold over a mix of kind of the newer and older classes that had nationalized as the country had nationalized. But then it had taken on these other connotations of kind of meaning, um, yeah. Like the rich people from, um, the Northeast, um, going way back. Um, and it, it, and then other people think it means like all, you know, pro- all white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, um, all old stock people. So it it's confusing the way it is used.
0: Well, <laughs> We're told that, okay, there's this ruling class of people. They go to Nantucket. They wear Abercrombie. They have debutante balls. You're in Massachusetts. You're where the action really happens. Uh, all this stuff is. And you ain't seen those debutante balls. And the ones I've heard of are in New York City. And by the way, if, I don't know if people know what a debutante ball is. Is like a quinceañera for white people.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You say the debutante ball or or originated from the south coast of England, right? That's, that's the...
2: Um, I was just—I was saying that they—they uh, were copying kind of Southern style aristocrats or like something that you, they would get from Europe. I—I I mean, uh-huh. I, th- there's a mythology there that I, I honestly—I don't know how to make sense of it or how much of it was true. Look, but she, it, she, yeah,
3: she has too much integrity to make up stuff. But I have no problem doing that. Yeah, south coast of England, <laughs> Southern United States, same people. The, the, you know, the people that we're talking about, they didn't come from the South Coast. They came from like the, what the, uh, the, e- the Eastern part of, of the United Kingdom. It's so like, they, they, they stole the time ball from us You can just say, it. you don't, you don't, you don't, have, you don't have to, we don't have to put on any spin here.
0: Are you going to auction off your daughter? In a, uh, that's a
3: different thing. We don't-
0: something I want to get into a little bit later about the character of the, of the Brahmin, but let's, let's focus on the Brahmin thing, because that's something that was new to me. I, I and after I looked it up, there's a, there's an effing Wikipedia article on it and like, okay, so we're told, Oh, the, 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 the aforementioned uh, people were ruling. Well, no, what you told me, uh, was that no, the actual aristocracy for a certain time period was these people called the Boston brahmin. So can you tell us a little bit about the Boston brahmin?
2: Um, uh, again, there's, this is a term that is somewhat disputed and conferred with a few different things, but I, mainly what this refers to is that is the ruling class of the new england puritans who um settled in massachusetts around boston and they ended up becoming the most basically the most powerful and especially long-term culturally influential institutionally influential um of the early american elites um there were some other states that had somewhat comparable establishments, but they, I think, were unique in their impact. Um, And a lot of that had to do with their belief that they were in America, that God had given them, you know, this Massachusetts and perhaps the whole country to make a city on a hill, to to live the right way. Um, And they devoted themselves to that and really had an interest in this mission, um, this national vision uh, over time. That then they were able to, um, as the country, you know, the revolution and and then nationalization, they were the only ones who had a real interest in exercising national leadership and had the ability to do that um, versus more local leadership, especially as time went on. Um, and so they were the real kind of power elite and they had the characters of a, a governing elite you know not just there are different obviously different types of elites but these were people who were capable of exercising political power and a, a coherent culture um on the national stage uh, for long <laughs> period of time
3: but it was a great that was that was a great PR statement and they were just people who had these dreams of like you know political power on a national level yeah that's one way of putting it
0: Yeah. Obviously, there wasn't a Boston Brahmin in Montgomery, Alabama. Maybe there was, but you know uh, they don't. uh, That's not how they work. I'm guessing what happened, and like I know uh, for a lot of people in America, especially they're successful, Boston is where you go to to get an education. That's where the Mm -hmm.
2: yes
0: is the idea that you would go there, and the Brahmin would uh beat you into becoming accepting their their cultural values.
2: Um yeah oh well, they mostly um trained their own people, so you what you had was the the ministerial class you know the, you had these ministers who ran the state for a long time and who were extremely educated, extremely talented. And they had the only big university really around, and they had a set of talents that the rest of the elites did not really have um and uh they were you know an academic um clerical elite and so what you had was they were mainly training their own people although they did have eventually enroll um some some of the southern um elites also but the idea was not really that they would force you to have their values because that wasn't really practical um their values were so different um and kind of eccentric um but it it was and at that time education except for that very top class was more like a finishing school like networking
0: I'm status a, i'm a moron i you know the way i asked that i just realized uh, which from what you said i like oh wait a minute um the, the other people didn't go to those schools back when the uh, so i guess so another flagpole to put on here is you so you say the boston brahmin were ruling aristocracy or do they still rule or, if not, when did they rule? Uh, yeah.
2: Um, I can't say for sure where they are or what the, if they, who's in charge. Uh, I don't think they still rule, although I think a lot of their traditions and institutions have persisted. Um, they ruled, I mean, they'd had total rule of Massachusetts until, uh, probably, um, you know, well into the, the 19th century. And, um, They had great national influence, especially post-Civil War. Um, Their influence started to significantly decline um, in the late uh, 19th century. And then it seemed to kind of evaporate around 1910, 1920, although there was lingering influences for a few more decades after that. Um, So, yeah, I would say they, but they were a major, dominant player from basically the beginning of the, the country until uh, 1920 or so.
3: Okay, okay Bo you did it again. I got, I got, I got to call you out. You said like, yeah, Alabama doesn't have, you know, doesn't have Brahmin. That's true, but you know, the South did have that. They had first families of Virginia, families like Lee's, yeah. Yeah. Washingtons, Harrisons. You know, the place, place I live Cal- yeah. Harrisonburg. It's named after one of the and the guys
0: from Jamestown, right? Yeah. Yeah, I got that wrong because what I was thinking was like, well, um, the the, the what, she, what she was saying was that well, if you weren't if you were a, an elite in Alabama, you didn't go to school in Boston. Uh No. That's that that's the thing. Uh and that's, you know, they didn't have to teach outsiders because that was their thing uh back then, but um
2: and they oh. were the academic obsessives, the edu- I mean, Massachusetts, like you said, it, 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 it wasn't their religion was education and that they definitely were more into education than anyone else. Um, although, obviously, it Virginia had an elite and it did have University of Virginia and did make efforts in that direction. Um, uh, that was all true. Um, and just to clarify, the Boston Brahmins, some people use that term to mean more the merchant class that married in with them and became a larger group a little bit later with the puritans i you can draw the line either way but i'm talking about the kind of cultural elite um and political elite in the that was dominant in the 19th century
3: before before the civil war obviously harvard university's been around a very long time but when we say when we say you know, Harvard University, we have a very specific thing in mind. Like this is the, the most elite place in the United States you can go to. Everybody wants to go to Harvard. Before the Civil War, I'm not saying it wasn't a great school, but that wasn't the case, right? You like if, if not only would you not go there if you were a planter in Virginia, you didn't want to go there. You would like why would I go to Harvard University?
2: Pretty much, um, yeah. I mean, there were people who went, but it was it started to become a problem actually right before the Civil War because people would go there, southern southern elites, and become abolitionists and free their slaves. And, <laughs> and, and, and so things never change. <laughs> yeah, so like you did have a little bit of that, um, but back then, all colleges, universities in the U.S. were local for the local elite. You know, the Purins were a little bit different in that, like theirs was specifically for training ministers. Um, and then for training their cultural elite, which kind of, which is kind of unique, but you were, you had a specific, for the most part you were doing a locally oriented, it wasn't like a totally meritocratic thing or right? that wasn't the point. It was to create a, a, um, gentleman class, a, you know, a, and a get cohesion and educate them in the traditions and all that. Um, now after the civil war, this is when the wasp starts to shape up because, you get started you're starting to modernize you're starting to get a middle class you're starting to get everyone like not everyone but many more people go into colleges the colleges start rapidly expanding and so harvard ends up having to in its effort to compete to stay number one um rapidly expands and and redesigns itself so and that's when you start to see some of the debutante ball stuff and whatever popping up it it's like this but it's this culture that like when i was reading about the history of harvard which I, i do a lot it's like what happened? Like all of a sudden, the t- the culture of Harvard is like totally unrecognizable. And this is around the time, like, say Theodore Roosevelt was there. Um, all of a sudden, they're all obsessed <laughs> with getting into these clubs, and and it becomes all about social status, and and, and in a way that is um, very different from the original Boston obsessions.
0: I'm guessing you would need to be in Skull and Bones in. The real old days, because uh, the other guys on campus are your cousins and shit. Uh,
2: I mean, yeah, with, uh, with Yale, I don't quite know exactly how that works. But yeah, you wouldn't need to be because uh, at Harvard, you know, you were there. They did have some little clubs, but you were already connected to the community. You already, and, and it was also very individualistic. And Harvard was more meritocratic in that they were looking for these top scholars and ministers. And really, you know, they were there to, to learn. Um, it was not a so it was not a gigantic social party, like some of the other colleges that always tend more towards. And then it became that when you started to get a national um, uh, constituency for this, these colleges and Harvard was David, dominant.
0: David Hogg would have had to brush up on his uh, ancient <laughs> ancient Greek and Latin before he got accepted.
2: well, yeah, and they dropped Greek and Latin um in part because they wanted to be able to admit more students, Um, and, you know, (laughs) the standards could not be met. I mean, most other states did not have fanatical literacy and everybody learning Greek and Latin, and, you know, it just wasn't realistic.
0: Something I'm getting from this is that, uh, I don't know know how to say it, but the debutante ball thing and all this other kind of shit, it sounds kind of trashy for those kind of people.
2: (laughs) Right. To To the Brahmins, it would have been trashy. Um, I'm not judging it. I'm just saying that you know this is what I mean by the difference of like it's supposed to be like glamorous or whatever. Like it it if you're looking at it from the Brahmin perspective, like which is what I had been studying, Um, and then you switch to it. It's like who are these you know kind of people who showed up and just were not they were not they like again new money versus old money. New they money. They seemed yeah. unserious. They seemed kind of unserious by comparison, and in a lot of ways, like that's inevitable. Like the difference in incentives and then in being how rooted you are and whether you have like a class consciousness the the class authority that the you know what the puritans had going what the brahmins had going was rare to be able to have had this elite tradition that it had brought up um over many years and um it, then it was like we tried to switch to generating this national elite which is kind of just taken from everywhere based on academic performance and some other things and it's not really clear that you can get the same results from that. Um, it's a very different
3: model <laughs> uh, Char- uh, yeah uh, you I'm chom- champing the bit Charles William Elliot, do you think he destroyed I mean uh, he destroyed Harvard, but did he also destroy the wasp as a class?
2: Uh, I think he was navigating some inevitable shifts and <laughs> did his best to preserve their influence, but ultimately that you know wasn't they did lose their influence once around, you know, once he was gone. Um, and I think that was kind of inevitable. I don't blame it on him. I think he was attempting to mitigate and get ahead of the, the decline that was kind of built in. And part of it was just that this was a very small group. It was a very small group that couldn't have possibly been doing everything forever. And um, especially when he had all this immigration, when everything was everyone was moving around, there was such a big population boom, everything's changing. And they were also um, optimized for kind of this pre-modern leadership style, this very academic, priestly leadership style that was not really needed. And I think to a large extent why they kind of disappeared was a lot of them started bailing on their own institutions to do other things because, you know, they'd been kind of taken over to some extent and they, they didn't need them anymore. And, and so that's what happened. Just they became outdated.
3: Yeah, so uh, for listeners, Charles uh, Charles Eliot was the I think the president of Harvard from like 1870 until after the after the turn of the century sometime. He, oh, he was 1910. Yeah, so I mean, you know, basically the entire Republican era, he was not mm-hmm. Repu, not Republican era, but like the Republican Party era. He was the he was the man in charge of Harvard during that entire time when it shifted from what it was, it, which is funny because, like, in my opinion, what happened was the very first thing you said, like, these are people who had, like, they had an idea and they had, a, you know, a concept of how we could be national leaders. They got their wish. They became the leaders of the country. And when you become, when that happens, you you do destroy who you were before because now you're you're an imperial power. You're not you're not you're not the you're not the Northeast anymore. You're not this like. Mm-hmm. section of the country that has your own thing no you're in charge and that means that you're going to obliterate your identity along with everything else you do
0: i'm picturing this guy you just mentioned elliot as like a a khrushchev or a, a gorbachev
3: i was no he's not he's a revolutionary like he's, he's he transformed oh it.
0: oh okay well i
3: mean yeah but like, like like
0: she said i mean if the same things were happening at yale and princeton then you have to imagine that the forces of history were were at motion here rather than uh,
3: yeah, uh i mean i'm not suggesting that like that he did it you know that he like his like he was doctor no and he, but he was But
0: he was the man he was the manager on call when when it, it, went it it's
3: yeah it's always fun to pick like a person and say look at this person's tenure and then like this is this is when everything went terribly <laughs> well, wrong
2: he's he's usually criticized for having ruined education um it, like yes, was, in like, america no yeah <laughs> But at the time, and and in general, he he was considered a huge. I mean, he he managed to be like single-handedly in charge of um, American education, and also made Harvard number one and and like saved it and made it super competitive. So he was actually riding high and was considered a huge success. And I don't think he saw the decline coming. Oh. I think he retired at the totally, you know, feeling that things were mostly fine. And then it all like within a decade it was kind of gone um but I don't think like that it wasn't like he was viewed as presiding over a declining no culture. Oh, it looked not pretty good and then it was like all of a sudden it was toward it just kind of collapsed
3: well I mean, he's not i don't like think that. he's viewed the, the orthodox view of American history he's not viewed that way today because of the pe- like the people that he elevated are the ones who are still in charge and by the way bog just and if you keep uh, keep a score, he was also the longest-serving president of the American Unitarian Association.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Just throwing that out there. Just yeah. okay. Was that his
2: son? I think that was his son, Elliot, or maybe cause I think- Oh
3: yeah, I'm sorry. You're right. It was his son. He was he was not the longest-serving American. Oh, yeah, because
2: yeah, Elliot was actually fact check. He he did he didn't want he believed everything should be non-sectarian, and he um he was into science and like kind of not having religion, and he was a Democrat. That was all very unusual and out of line with the culture in general. But, like, he was apparently very talented at running Harvard. And and he um, seems to have kept his views to himself right until after, until 1910, when he started spouting off. Um, but, essentially, yeah, Massachusetts, uh, the Brahmins in Massachusetts basically were running the Republican Party for, you know, from the beginning until, um, the, uh, I don't know, 19. 19- well into the 19 early 1900s um though losing influence pretty quickly um he was in a weird democratic outlier but that was important that they were so influential with that party
0: we're conservative and so the whole i freaking love science thing you know (laughs) i don't think that looks so hot in 2023 especially i don't think uh and i i think that'd be more broadly i don't think people have seen these kinds of Huge jumps in their in their their uh the quality of life because of technology in a long time. The only people that I but the only people that I give a pass for, because there was a certain time in history where you had a great, great deal of people who were were not dumb and were virtuous people and who said, I freaking love science, man. And that was the uh that was basically after the antibiotics gets invented. When antibiotics gets invented, (laughs) people are like, Wow, we don't need it. We don't need, need any anything else but science. Science is the best thing in the world because, uh, I mean, you know, before antibiotics is invented, doctors are considered like quacks and weirdos, people that'll <laughs> chop you up and stuff. All of a sudden, antibiotics gets invented, and science is the greatest thing in the world. And I'm, I mean, it was. Uh, and I, that's around that same time, right?
3: Well, you, you take somebody like Henry Adams, who like he, he wrote he wrote a, his most famous book is basically science is really cool. I wish that I would have had a scientific <laughs> education instead of the you know, useless classical one that I received. Yeah, uh, but like if you think about it, he, when he's born, uh, there's there's probably like a, a couple miles of railroad tracks in the United States total. It's just, just everybody's running riding around in horses. By the time he dies. You know the their uh, airplanes are flying over the Western Front and people are being mm-hmm. you know, gassed and stuff. You know, like there was a there was a, an unimaginable advancement in a very short period of time. So you can see how they would think. Well, actually, yeah. science is to solve everything. He was obsessed with like electric, like the you know, electric power, and who wouldn't be if it, be, if it was invented right. during your
2: lifetime? Yeah, there's much. I, I'm much more sympathetic to the I believe science attitude people in that era. I mean, they, it was miraculous what they were seeing and it was you could imagine almost that anything was possible on a lot of things and there had been kind of the death of especially in boston you had kind of a collapse of religion in a place that was extremely religious and the elite didn't really know what to do and that you but you also had a strong tradition of science and medicine in boston and it was actually quite common for the, the leading ministerial families like one son would become a minister and the other would become a scientist or a physician and what part of where the, they went, when people say, where do the Brahmins go, where the Wasps go, wherever, when we're talking about this class, a lot of them became scientists and innovators and went and did their own thing um, once that was an option, instead of going becoming academics and becoming ministers and politicians, um, because that was always part of the culture, too. And they, they found that exciting. And there had been, throughout the 19th century, kind of a tug of war over what should be done at Harvard to focus on more religion and I don't know, what do we call it, humanities versus um, uh, the science and technology? And basically, it seems like there was some compromise there. And it was decided that because you had the middle class and the business people wanting their sons to be educated technically, and, and they thought that would be the future, and we don't need classics as much. And so, the compromise that seems to have been worked out was that Elliot, who was young but and associated with this new science um, movement, um, was supposed to work with Emerson. Who was I study and it was one of the reasons I got into this? Who was obviously from the, the religious and um, you know, philosophical literary background, but was o- considered for someone of his generation um, open to science without being totally given over to it, and and he understood the kind of the risk. And so they were he was supposed to I think balance them out. Um, and then Emerson actually then came down with Alzheimer's and had to retire very quickly, so it's not really clear what the plan was. Um, and then Eliot. Managed to figure out something from there, but that was a whole struggle that was going on about what were they going to do and and what was the new model of education going forward and how do you balance Harvard was was big on trying to balance and be the best at both science and the literary side and it did attract most of the like literary talent for a long time in the country. Um, That was what it was known for the literary history. some philosophy um, that was my first Mark thing
3: I'm, I'm glad you brought that name up because a, a listener I, we were, we've, ta- we've been talking forever about how we're going to do, do this kind of episode and uh, i a very knowledgeable listener I said is there any questions that I should ask and he said one was you might ask about what caused the male line to stop having children after the Longfellow and Emerson generation the split between mm-hmm. daughters who never married usually becoming social workers and the daughters who just married lumber barons
2: Yes, I've I've tried to look into that and I've seen different explanations for it. I have looked at a fairly small group of families that were like they real elite, like more like the Emersons than maybe some of the broader people that others have looked at. It looks to me like what you had was well, first of all, they were just small, and you had, you have some bad luck, and you know n- not everybody reproduces, uh, and a lot of people just were childless. But um, a lot of it was uh, that you had sons um, who were not in the institutions anymore a lot of the sons like I said were leaving and doing their own thing and kind of le- losing the class consciousness moving away gamers and they didn't want <laughs> to be in the institutions once once the middle class was in them they were kind of like this is a joke um, and they had other options <laughs> there they, 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 they are some of them are still there but they became harder to see or they decide, they were kind of appalled at how they were losing their culture and they slunk off and wrote, literally did what henry adams did they kind of complained um well you know it, it just was that's kind of what happened um but i think in any event they were just not a big group and they were not going to reproduce as much as the immigrants and they didn't have um ways of become uh, ways of having like the class cohesion to some extent they're very individual like first one thing i would that i feel like needs to be understood is they were very unique as an elite and as a people in their extreme individualism. Like there are, are characteristics they share with other kind of ruling elites, but I don't never, I think they they were unique in this like inner directedness, this, um, this just, they did, they just could not be um, a community without having that ties the, both the religion and the like needing to be in Massachusetts or near the institutions or whatever. If they were, if they didn't have structure, they kind of would just go off and pursue their own interests. Um, and that's kind of what happened, they, they just kind of evaporated out of the, of the institutions and other people came in. <laughs>
3: this reminds me, we read it before, I don't have it right here, but... you <laughs> The Jefferson Davis quote about like the eternal Puritan. They just can't get along with anybody. They go, they're wreckers. They just go, <laughs> going buck wild in every every country that they've ever been in. Yeah. Like almost all of the, you know, the Albion Seed folkways of America, like they kind of shared that thing. You know, the Scotch Irish obviously have a very individualist streak. I think the planter class had their own version of this. It wasn't exactly the same as the Brahmin, but it was, uh, more of a like I should be the I should be the Lord of my manor and do as I will.
2: But they, but they were more tied to kind of like tribal. Um, yes, I don't know how to put it that right. But they had they were individualistic. But like that's what I'm saying is the difference between like that like yeah you can compare them. they're both individualistic. But it was a what the Brahmins had was a different kind of individualism. Like it just was they they did not um, they were just totally fine doing their own thing yes uh, in a way that few people are
3: yes and like uh, individualism of like the mind and spirit they weren't tied to the land like the planners were like they they when right. you when you're tied when you're literally tied to the land you like there are there's some you have to be communal to an extent because you're always going to have neighbors you're going to have these people but with, with them hey you can just you're free floating in the ether right
2: and they were also able to generate their own um sense of purpose you know even though they, a lot of people say they've lost Confidence themselves, they lost faith or whatever. That's totally untrue as applied to the Boston Brahmin class. Um, they seem to just be able to um, redirect their religious impulse onto something else and be thrilled with that to some extent. Um, they never were. They never lost confidence. They were the most confident people, you know, full purpose. Um, but it was a blow to them when they they lost control of the culture. But they they for the most part all stayed on the mission, trying either if they didn't go work mm-hmm. on a different project they did try to the very end to make it work and they never reassessed or became a convert really to a totally different way of being. Um, they were, they're extremely purpose driven, mission driven.
0: Can Can you imagine like the North, like the, uh, the Brahmin doing like a, um, in the South, I mean, so I was reading, well, there was one elite, uh, a Southern elite I was reading about in turn, the individual thing, he, he had like a bad boy streak in terms of like, um, <laughs> He would write books and this is like in, in, in times where there's slavery, he would write science fiction books, fantasy books. There was sex in it. It was a little bit like a rock and roll streak to it. And there was no problem with that. But the same guy, his family, uh, his brother decided to marry one of his, one of his black slaves. They killed him. I don't think you would see that up North. You know that? Like, I don't know what you call that. Cause honor killing is usually the girl, but you know, I don't think you would <laughs> see that. But, uh, I, the second half of this, I don't know. Let's get out all the, uh, I don't know if everyone's cool with this, but let's get out all the lesser qualities of the Boston Robin. And I want to have the whoa, whoa, whoa. La- latter half be, uh, uh a, a shameless PR session. Why is that? Because oh,
3: well, no, 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 before I, that's fine. But I want to ask her something before we move on, because she said something earlier that I never considered. And it was kind of like a light bulb moment. You're talking about how. Elliot was, you know, a Democrat, and it was unusual because, yes, this is re- very Republican territory. You know, Elliot's a big man at the time that someone like Woodrow Wilson's coming of age, and you know, Woodrow Wilson's a local boy. He's from, from Stanton. Uh, we we hate him, by the way, but he, he's a local boy, and he was in the president, Democratic Party, but he was very not like a, you know, not the kind of democratic party guy that you would have, you would have expected when no, he
0: came. Copperhead.
3: <laughs> no, I mean, well, he, not George Wallace. Or- he's not a redeemer. I'll put it that way. He's not a, re- he's not really a redeemer. Do, like, is that is, is there some genealogy there is, is like, is he coming from out of this Elliot? I don't know. Ethos of the, the new democratic party. Um.
2: Wait, is who coming out of the?
3: Uh, Woodrow, yeah. Will, like Woodrow
2: Wilson. Oh. Um, the Democratic Party has always been an assortment of interests. Yeah.
1: Uh,
2: Wilson would have been a Democrat because he was a Southerner for the most part, but also because yeah. at that time, progress, progressives of that kind were into, were generally on, on that side. and that Like is Brian. Elliot was also, for that reason, um, if you were into... Uh, future like the idea like I mean the whole point is like the Boston Brahmin tradition was like okay like we do history forever like we never we have unchanging kind of moral principles and this is the way we are and we're sticking to it and if you wanted to instead evolve and you believed in like you know evolution and all these different things like and and about the way states evolve and we're going to become an entirely fundamentally different society like you would become a democrat for the most part because that's where that was accepted and that was what northern democrats who were who were uh, non-catholic tended to be like
3: okay i'm gonna ask you the dangerous question did quakers take over the republican party is that what happened to the brahmin um
2: i don't i wouldn't put it that way uh i don't uh i don't you know it depends on it's like are we using that as a shorthand for you know it it, 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 what's true is that whatever won't get you fired just say that
0: if anyone out there is has sort of like basic anti Semitic views, like about how the how the Jews operate or something, spend an evening looking at the Quakers. <laughs> uh, oh my goodness. Ha, have a look at how these people operate in politics. That's all I have to say about that. Now like I was saying before, <laughs> I would like the latter half of this to be a Okay. Shameless promotion of the of the, of the, the Boston Brahmin. And why? Because we've had a couple episodes about this, and they've all been anti-Brahmin, and I, I think, Carrie, you can represent a, <laughs> a, a, a pro case. Before we go there, let's let's do let's finish up any other business we have, especially uh, roasting them, Eric. If you have any more <clears throat> of that, uh, but I've got one there that I don't think this fits anywhere else with a greater narrative. I think people would want to know this answer. Did the wasps? Sorry, the Brahmin. Uh, did they adopt John F Kennedy into their circles?
2: So I wouldn't exactly put it that way. Cause they, the point is where they were gone, they were, they were kind of gone by the time he was coming up the, but he, what he what basically he was able to do was take over part of that tradition that was now kind of gone. Like it wasn't in, in Massachusetts that had kind of. Then left, and he picked it up and ran with it, and so he was definitely part of that culture, um I would say, uh, and that was key to his success, but it wasn't so much that they adopted him; it was just more that he made use of the tools available and the opportunities available. I think the way things were working at that time, you know the Brahmins had decayed, and you had more low level um low level people there. Trying to hang on it had become very kind of at that point. I think you had more like ethnocentric, um, you know, viewpoints and, and less of the history. And so, because the Kennedys were Catholic and, low, and lower status, and which to that crowd, like they were opposed. Um, and that so they couldn't really adopt him. Um, but yet he was part of that what lingered of that culture, um, and, and embodied it in some ways. And he had gone to Harvard. I mean, like there, there was at that point some overlap. But just the point is, like at that point, um, the Brahmins were largely gone, and a bunch of people had come in.
3: Okay, this is our last opportunity to roast. Okay, so they, uh, they, they got got not totally yeah, but almost total control over the country after the Civil War. They, we pretty much we, we lived in. Um, Yan- Yankee World for, for, for the the sec, you know the second half of the nineteenth century and part of the early twentieth century, but the changes that they made ensured that they would never they would not remain on top. They pretty much handed their political power over to other people. A good example you, know, you could make an argument that Henry Cabot Lodge was the second most powerful man in the country. You know, around the turn of the century, mm-hmm. what's that? Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. So, so not the most, but second. He was a very important man. He was a very important man. His son was a very important regional politician. He you know worked for worked for uh, Eisenhower. I think uh, he, he he was he was still he was still there. Kind of like Huey Longson, son, right? He he was a powerful man in his own right in the region. His grand his grandkids they I I don't think any of them are in politics anymore because what like what. What room is there for the the lodges in Massachusetts? Like the mm-hmm. the lodge that's Kennedy Country now, right? Yes. And so or I think what, that it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, in, in, in the our, the irony is that the people who they handed the coalition to handed it away again. This is just this is what happens. Like, you know, there, there's some <clears throat> if that's not the worst thing, like the the worst crime in the world, but you know that that's something to think about.
0: You see what they did to well, Qu- to Cuomo. <laughs>
2: <laughs> what I would say on that is uh, the way I look at it is th- the Brahmins they they did what they pretty much had to do. And
0: I, I asked a, uh, a Russian person once. I said, "What do you think about Stalin?" They said, "He did what he had to do."
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, well, I mean, I do think that that is how I see it. Um, I don't think they did anything wrong i think it was actually amazing how well they played it but it's just <laughs> what you ended up with was every single other group was opposed to them because they were the ones with the power and so they they could not possibly take them all on and and win it out over the you know they did it for a while it's amazing how far they got but eventually it just was not realistic that they were gonna be able to keep control it's not that i think they they gave it win. In fact, to the extent they helped, you know, pass on these traditions and integrate a new, a new elite knowing they needed that, that they were being replaced, like that I view as again, like a success in the fact that they were able to successfully perpetuate those traditions rather than just get overthrown and they did it peacefully. I mean, I think that's good. What else? There was no other way they were going to really, what else could they have done? Um, I mean-
3: what they could have done is we could have continued to be a country that had like sections of political power. You could have not, like, like they could have not imported a, 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 a buttload of people and then had prosecuted a war against the other part of the country and then taken it over by force of arms. Like I, I, I understand <laughs> why I understand why this happened. I'm not, I'm not trying well, I am trying to le- relitigate that, but that's not the point. Carrie, I, <laughs> I,
1: I,
0: I, 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 I warned you this that was, was going to happen. <laughs> <laughs>
2: To put it simplistically, they honestly believed that that New England and their mission would not survive if the, if they didn't get the South and, and West essentially under control because they believed that they were going to be t- undertaken by a foreign power and respect <laughs> because they couldn't be independent. Like, they did not trust and believe that they could self-govern at all. And uh, they wanted yeah. to run those places like colonies of New England and redo the entire country to be under their control and redesigned on the New England basis. That's what they believed was necessary for the survival of their own tradition and the culture. And they felt entitled to do that. Um, I get why other people would find that offensive, <laughs> um, but like, I don't think it was, I think especially looking at what's happened, I don't think it was as unreasonable as people that make it seem. And I also think they had very legitimate concerns for as to why the South was a security, like, a, a security threat. Um, I'm not not saying it wasn't a big thing that they did or why I don't get why people resent it. But I really think Mm. they felt they needed to go in and and deal with that. But they could only deal with it so much. And, you know, the rest of the country started to gang up against them again, naturally, Um, you know, during Reconstruction. And and that was kind of the end of that. When they didn't win Reconstruction, it became more and more difficult. Um, But the country was already having a lot of strains by mid on 19th century and they, they came in and had had addressed many of those in a way that i find very impressive and i think the problem now that we have is there's nobody to replace them with the coherence in the sense of mission and the desire to make this project work and, and having like a, basically like a religious need to fix these problems and integrate everybody and and make sure everything's consistent um you know, that was the role they played that has been very, very difficult to replace. And so, yeah, now we're kind of drifting with, you know, believe science is much harder to take seriously. I mean, in part, it's because there's been no coherence. in And this, this new lost leadership, you know, my criticism of them would be, and I, again, I don't think they really could have helped this. But I wish that there was more consciousness of the way they differed from the Brahmins in that because they don't have these traditions and these roots and these understandings of what you have to do to be a governing elite, were kind of spiraling and it doesn't seem like most people understand why.
0: Yes. 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 This is okay. This is, this is the, 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 uh, this is the real meat, the, the filet mignon of this conversation of, of where, of what's, what's important about this conversation, which nobody talks about the big thing, especially I think if you're okay, I'll just put it like this. So, uh, obviously me and Merrick, we're Southern. Uh, we, we have uh, d- d- longstanding, uh, hatred of, of these people. However, <laughs> it's re- it's better to have uh, a manager that you hate to have a different manager every week because you can't make mm-hmm. deals with whatever rules the United States. There's no one, there's nothing that, that sort of sits in. I'm I, sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go off. Uh, but I, I, okay, I'll have it. I'll have a question for you. That'll set that up in a second. But before we go there, I'm going to have to sell people on this because we're going, a lot of people are going to dismiss this conversation because they're going to say, maybe they're right. I don't know. Uh, well, I'm going to ask you that, uh, these people were un that the Boston Brahmin were unfit to be a ruling aristocracy because they, they're like, uh, the essence of, uh, leftism, progressivism. These people, uh, invented progressivism. They're like the, the United States is exactly how they want that, how they want it to be. They would have done everything the same. And so I don't know, tell me something, a, a surprising way that they were, uh, I don't know, socially conservative or is that true? Or were the, are these people just, uh, is just being, uh, uh you know, a, a modern radical progressive, uh, the just was it is that built into these people is that who they are
2: they their culture led to a particular type of what i would call i guess like sort of liberal it was a conservative liberalism um it it was a unique culture that in many ways can look left wing it is not the same thing as all the strains of progressivism it, it, it depends on what aspect you're talking about i mean they, they were not progressive in the sense that they believed that Humanity would fundamentally change. They were not socialists. They were not um, um, people who believed in... Um, they, they Well, first of all, overall, they really believed in keeping order and doing it right and not losing their city on the hell. So they didn't do ridiculous social programs. And a lot of the things that, when I've looked into the things that are, they get criticized for that are supposed to be like liberal, lose and run amok. Um, a lot of those things, when you look into it, once again, they really did have like some like national security reason for doing it, and it like it's a t- their their motivations were not what is said that but they certainly were um I mean, Massachusetts was outstanding in its commitment to abolition and civil rights. I mean, no other state comes close to it would never have gotten done without Massachusetts like obsession with the need for um individual equality and freedom uh, that they really believed in that. So on issues of race they they're very liberal but they wouldn't have appreciated this um some of the, the progressive things now where it's group based they were not group based people um they were indi- individualistic um and they were liberal in the way that cosmopolitan intellectual people tend to be in general like that is the that they're all pretty much like that in it, all over the world you get that they're um going to be more open to um you know kind of a less traditional religion they're gonna be more open to science they're going to be more open to alternative lifestyles and, and things like that um but they also were extremely patriarchal and they were not very liberal when it came to women <laughs> so it kind of depended yeah liberalism is often a result of having to deal with certain conflicts, like, for example, the idea that, you know, the religious wars or whatever led people to declare religious tolerance because you simply had to put an end to all the fighting. The, the fact is the Boston browns they were extremely, because they were all religious fanatics, and individualists, um, you ended up with all these dissenters and, you know, it was too much if you were gonna, um, you couldn't have everyone trying to enforce orthodoxy on each other. So over time, it just became the norm to be chill about a lot of this stuff because there was just so much self-expression and interesting things going on there. And if you're in a big city and you're in your major city kind of, like in a, they were basically a city state and you're dealing with national commerce and national governance and international relations, like you're going to be fairly unfazed by a lot of things and you're going to have to adopt, you know, norms that are um, kind of more universalistic and, and, you know, that's, you're just going to be different. You're And that, in many ways, makes you liberal. And it's not like they do it because they're just altruists and utopians. Like, that's really not what goes on. It, It was a rational response, for the most part, to what they had to deal with. And they're often judged for that. And it's like, again, it comes down to, like, what was the alternative? Like, I can see, like, a lot of other places they complain about, you know, we can't, our traditional way of life is, like, not working or whatever. Um, But then they don't show that they have any real way of keeping that going under the conditions. Whereas what the Boston Brahmins did was they reinvented themselves and forced themselves to modernize over time, forced themselves to figure out a niche. And I mean, they were a pretty eccentric, pre modern group, not really well suited to a lot of these changes, but they forced themselves to adapt because um, one thing that kind of characterized them was they sort of sold themselves as like, what we're really good at is is just like being subversive in a way that turns into o- law and in order. <laughs> like that was kind of their trick. It was like they would explain how they were able to be very like radical, but in it, it produced stable results because they were controlling it. They were using it for like kind of creative destruction and and constructive innovation, keeping up with the times, keeping up with the changes. That's part <laughs> of how they kept their power. And so in that way, they were traditional or conservative. They were conserving themselves and their traditions by by adapting. But it, it was disruptive.
0: Okay, so I'm not pleased with the state of uh, what we call civil rights law in the United States. I think it's bad. I would happily, I would like to go back to the thing where it's like, um, uh, well, it's equality under the law. We don't have white and black water fountains, uh, but we do. but we also do not have things like um uh disparate impact, uh all the ways that protected class is abused, disparate impact in particular, things like protected class is abused. And even on the right, if you think like, well, uh yeah, but we need to go further. You would be living a paradise if we got rid of, of the uh bonus interpretations that came since the civil rights. Were those those things like disparate impact, would they have agreed with things like that?
2: So I've been wondering lot about that lately and researching it and finding some interesting things. Oh I my, I think there's a few different things were gone but I would say generally no I, th- I to me when I look at what happened with that the last of the kind of Boston Brahmins did helped secure civil rights that was kind of one of their last um, last actions when the, of that old what remained of the, the old talent um, and then that was right at the point where they lost kind of all control and I believe honestly that the The people who took over after that just had absolutely no idea how to handle this and did all sorts of just dysfunctional things in different ways um in ways that are not really surprising when you look at what the circumstances were there's no reason they would have been able to handle it well um but it was just a kind of a tragedy that the brahmins were not if they had been there longer i think it might have gone much differently, but because that was when you got the turnover and it was full, full transition to this new ruling class, um, all these crazy things happened. And no, I don't think they would support a lot of what's gone on. Um, but that being said, it's it would be so different. I think had they been involved, that it's hard to know. It's hard even to kind of imagine how things would have played out. But I think it would have played out um, much better. Um, that
0: that makes sense to me. I mean, these are the people that, uh, uh, they fought us and then, uh, they certainly didn't object to things like Robert E. Lee statues going up, uh, mending that fence after it was over. I mean, not exactly right. Obviously reconstruction was rough, but, um, I mean, there's, there's this, the, the opinion that's come about in the past 20, 30 years, certainly on things like, uh, civil rights or, uh, the civil war or whatever, it certainly doesn't look like exactly the same people are in charge. And, um, now let's just go, let's just put the pedal to the metal. And by the way, part of this is a, uh, tribute to, um, uh, Curtis Jarvin calling him a, a communist. So, uh, now we're going to talk about all the great things about the, uh, uh, <laughs> about the Boston brought Merrick. Uh, you should have laughed at that.
1: <laughs> I
3: was, no, I was just having a big, after which I was having a big think. you know, uh, I, Sumner, he was, he was a b, Bo- he was a he was. I know he was a Boston guy. Was he a Brahmin?
1: Who, who, wait, who? Charles Sumner.
2: So, I mean, it depends. I guess on how you're going to define it. He's in <laughs> that group, but if you were to look at his social position and analyze it, um, he was from a a poor family, um, but that but his father had gained some favor with the elites and um, had had been able to go to Harvard, Charles. Um, and he'd, he was very well liked by the attorneys there, and they asked him to, to work with one of the leading attorneys as an assistant and work in the library. And so he became like essentially um, an employee of the Brahmin class, like an employee of the establishment. <laughs> he was in an officer, court, whatever you call it. Like he was—he
3: wasn't a made man. He was just an associate. <laughs> he, he,
2: yeah, yeah, he was not a leader. He was definitely a worker. But he was definitely part of that culture and became quite powerful and kind of worked his way to a higher position. But it was not he was not born into um, the ruling class in any way.
3: I was just thinking, you know, we're talking about equality before the law. Someone like Sumner or like I guess Thaddeus Stevens, who, by the way, Pennsylvania guy. I think he, he I know mm-hmm. he, he wasn't a Congregationalist. I'm not sure. I have to, I have to further investigate that, but. Uh, you know, may, uh, was was equality before the law like a religious belief of the Brahmin class, or was that something separate?
2: Well, they believed in like, equality before God, and like the way that would translate into law, like everybody being treated right as and in like you know a person with dignity and and whatever. Um, they they um, didn't believe in that. You know, everything had to be made equal i mean they were realistic about power in the sense that you know sometimes there are reasons to have um to to assist certain groups you know and and like they did see that like the freeman's bureau and stuff like that like i mean it wasn't like they were opposed to like policies targeting groups with specific needs you know but it but it would not have been on a basis of anything other than you know individual um you know uh the, the law should apply to everyone equally is should be the default, yes. Um they were not. That's kind of the difference between a huge difference between them and Stevens is the Massachusetts, the Brahmins and the whole Massachusetts tradition was elitist, it was Republican, it absolutely did not believe in any sort of um the democracy could work without elite guidance. It did believe in local self-government under like a minister or something that after if you once you were trained up to the point where you could do that. But this idea that like you could have a Jacksonian democracy, like this working man's like they did not they were like, Yeah right. Like that's not gonna work for five seconds. Um they they were always laughed at that. That that was kind of where they got defeated was when that started to become a thing. And so Stevens was a big fan of that. And you know that's where I think he just totally lost the plot because he's like, we're going to have Jacksonian democracy in the South. That's multiracial. whatever. it was like, that was not realistic at all. Like, like the Brahmins knew, like, no, they're not like the common white people are, are poor and just getting out of this are not going to be great at self-governing. They're not, they're going to be racist. People who are just out of slavery, <laughs> need some assistance, like you, someone's going to have to go in and manage and, and get them to a place where they could then move forward as a multiracial democracy, ideally, at some at some point, but they did not think <laughs> you could just have that happen. Like, and people like Stevens, like they just had way too much faith in this um, <sighs> and the common man.
0: I know, bro. I'm a, I'm a Vanity Fair recognized thinker in the South. I have chewing tobacco in my mouth right now. Um, but,
3: uh, well, I. I promise. I promise. I'll be good after this because I know we're gonna be. We're praising the Brahmins. We. we I, I know that. But <laughs> I got. But she, what she said, I gotta ask her because this is kind of. This is something that I've. I've thought for quite a while. Specifically, well, you mentioned Stevens and some of his like uh, <laughs> plans for for uh, reconstruction. I think that there is a, a good argument that not just. The re- radical Republicans and their political descendants have had this idea that we can pass laws and we can do like social engineering in the South, and it'll this this, this is specifically we're making to are these laws and this stuff only applies to the South. It's never going to apply to to where we live, and we're not going to change anything. But like here here you have to do it this way, and every single time that's happened, there's been there's been a, a boomerang effect. Whether whether you like, whether you think it was a good thing or a bad thing, I, I don't, like, did, do you think that, I mean, I know the Brahmins definitely <laughs> didn't submit people who wouldn't, who would en- enjoy this. Like, maybe someone like, like Thaddeus Stevens might, because I think that he was kind of a radical maniac in both his personal and political life. But I don't think the, I don't think the people who sound like, okay, yeah, sure, we'll, We'll do this. We'll we'll pass these laws, and we'll make the South behave. And then, lo and behold, a judge decides. Actually, thank you for this law. This means now, you know, w- uh, this stuff applies to Boston too.
2: The, 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 first of all, they controlled the judiciary, so like that would never have happened, and nobody ever thought to do that. <laughs> that. That's what I mean about like basically the Democrats take over. Obviously, the civil rights issue in in the '60s, and that's and there's other changes besides just that, but like honestly, just when that happened, it was just a different, everything just went nuts. We can get into a million reasons why that happened. But it was because, in part because they they were coming from a totally different viewpoint and incentives. And and I think some of it was to get back at Boston and different things like that. Um, But the Boston province, had they been in charge, none of that would have happened in the same way. And some of the backlash that happened, they, they incurred purposely out of not having a choice um, when they had to use the federal judiciary to, uh, they had to have the Supreme court make rulings that then affected everybody because it was the only way to calm down certain situations in the South, but they were not delusional about the fact that you can't just, they prided themselves on having created a self-governing community successfully in Massachusetts um that was kind of unprecedented and it was and it was you know highly literate and it it had it worked well they they wanted that to be the model but they understood it took time and training under a skilled elite that was sensitive culturally into everything else to get that going they did not believe you could magically pass a law and turn the south into new england they didn't have any expectation that you could just magically Social engineer. That was they were the ones who were sane on that question. Um, To the extent they wanted to go in and do things, they were like, "We'll go in with the military and we'll sit there and help you do it." Like they were doing it in like a way that could actually work, not like a magical like press a button or something. Um, They knew that there were all these difficulties that they'd have to be dealing with. And so then when you got into this later situation where people didn't get that, it became a real problem. Um, And It just wasn't intended to end up that way. And, you know, they were lucky that Kennedys, I think, were there, still rooted in that tradition, to help deal with some of that. I mean, a lot of what happened with, for example, um, a lot of the civil rights stuff that was very um, kind of sudden and destabilizing in a way that was debatable whether you should have handled it exactly that way, even (laughs) if most people agree with it, Um, and the stuff that kind of backfired... A lot of the reasons for that kind of a sudden crackdown was that like there was a real national security issue. I mean, you had people really revolting. There was a lot of you know Marxism had caught on. There were a lot of people in liberationist movements. You ha- and you started to get the mass media broadcasting these atrocities, and you started to get um, northerners coming down to start vi- like they wanted to, the idea was well we'll we'll you know protest, and when when they're violently attacked. Um, that it will call attention to it and it will outrage people and the federal government will be forced to do the right thing. They were attributing way too much power to the federal government than it than it had to control that situation. Um, you know, they were not reasonable they were not realistic, even if they're trying to do the right thing. The Boston Brahmins knew that. They knew we can't just, you know, we can't control everybody in the South. Like it was very dangerous to be going down and, and just demanding it like it could be fixed overnight. And so they ended up having to kind of Pass these laws to get the situation off the streets and, and get the tension down and get some troops in there to keep the peace because <laughs> they couldn't do it via normal channels. Um, so that's what, a lot of what was going on with that is that they were not the ones doing that, but multiple times, even though they did want so they absolutely wanted civil rights, they absolutely wanted to kind of redo the self-known image, but they understood that had to be done if to be done at all, had to be done like correctly through hard work. And the the things that were more Kind of dubious and that backfired. Were usually them responding to the naivete of the rest of the country, and different states had different forms of naivete. But this lack of national governing experience that all the other states had made them very naive on this issue, and it was really a problem for the province.
3: To, I mean, to be fair to the to the activists who tried that, I mean, it did work a hundred years later. Like they said, they successfully executed that plan. It just you know wasn't yeah, the yeah, same th- players.
2: That, that, Exactly. Yeah. No. That that was why it happened in the 1960s. And and um, yeah, that that was a big part of it. It just you had the situation was explosive, and you know the southerners were kind of, southern politicians were asking like, we need help. Um, and there was only so much that could be done to calm that down. And so that's why a lot of these that was always their theory. I mean, they felt it was destabilizing to the country to have these issues, these divisions um, communities that couldn't get along with each other, like, that was why they opposed segregation, and ma- they opposed so many other things. It was also, um, they opposed things that delegitimized the, the court system, the government system, the political philosophy that was their creation to a large extent, and that they were proud of their mission. They believed, like, the entire legitimacy of the government and the court system was going to go down if, if Southerners flouted it in such a conspicuous way. Um, and they were right to a large extent about that, and that's what led to a lot of some of these, um, you know, some aggressive measures.
0: Uh, by the way, um, you know, uh, everyone knows how the uh, the Brahmin caste works in India. I don't want to get into that, but um, uh, the secret to Jacksonian democracy is uh, if North is Brahmin, it was a Sikh thing. It was uh, the secret is it was uh, we wanted a uh, a military elite instead of a uh, academic elite, but. Uh, rather than like an Athenian <laughs> democracy but anyways um okay so now uh just tee off let's go would the country would the united states in 2023 be a better place to live in for most people if the boston brahmin were still in control
2: i believe so um i i personally that's why i defend them to this extent, I I feel like this negative conversation that has grown grow up around them or a non conversation a lot of the time. Um, I think it's it's unfortunate because while we can't obviously replicate them and they wouldn't necessarily be suited to the current conditions, uh, their function needs to be studied and replaced to some extent, uh, and that requires understanding the function they serve, the skills they have, and just being able to acknowledge the fact that they existed and did a pretty good job at a lot of things. Um, and that's more like where my concern is. And I think for the good things about them, um, again, they they were able to create a national government and tradition, cultural traditions, literary traditions, and responsibility,
0: responsibility. They, they, they absolutely felt responsible. They were
2: responsible. They felt they they own, you know, what people get criticized for is they felt that they own the whole country. You know, this is before we had, you know, democratized a lot of things. there was still a Republican form of government, still local. That wasn't as outrageous as it sounds now. I mean, that was a model that some people did accept, including other states. Um, but they they believed in their own cultural authority, their own, um, they had class authority. They believed that this was their mission. They wanted to get it done. They were loyal to this. They were all in on it. They, you know, they were trustworthy on that and they were going to try everything they could to make it work in line with what I think was a pretty good vision with you know, with pretty good institutions. Uh, And I think, you know, that is very hard to replace. Um, That's one thing I think was very good about them. Um, I like, I mean, I think some of their quirks were very useful in certain things, like that interdirectedness made them not um, easily angered. They weren't, they could deal with conflict well. They could stay focused. They didn't get too personal. um, And they were real good at mapping out social situations and political situations and kind of with strategies and adaptations and thinking ahead and they were willing to make compromises and do what needed to be done you know realistically even when that took a lot of sacrifice on their part or risk on their part they were very willing to put a lot of effort into assimilating um, newcomers or working with the south trying to get that fixed you know even if from the southern perspective it didn't really look that way like i think they really were trying to settle it um they wanted peace and success i think overall and they wanted everybody to be part of their vision so i think that was very positive i think the losing of the confidence that we can assimilate people that we can deal confidently with our culture and be proud of it and preserve it has been an issue um i think the they had a great knowledge historical knowledge they have sense of history deeply rooted traditions wisdom that is very hard to replicate. Uh, if you don't know, you have to go out there and get it. Um, we find, I think that American political life has repeatedly found itself going back to them after some disaster because they did have such a, they, they were able to put down such strong groundwork. Um, it's a great foundation on which to build. Um, and nobody has really replaced that or shown we can do something much better than that. Um, and then separately from the political stuff, I mean, a lot of them were just brilliant and very uh, creative, talented, um, uh, driven. Um, I, they were very big on free speech and expression and independent thought. That's kind of my favorite part about them is, you know, and they were writing all the time. Um, they were interesting they were interesting and they um, were very engaged with life and very, um, uh, you know, intellectually productive Um you know that there's no doubt that they were very talented and very interesting um and uh i mean those and they were also very devoted to certain causes that um i think were were admirable and they were also very realistic about what was possible and tried to maintain law and order and uh had a good sense of what that required which i think nowadays that sounds you know it's we haven't had that um so it it uh i, I think it's a greater appreciation for what that means on um, the stability that they were able to provide and um their unique talents and ways of providing that stability
1: wait one you
3: know, one thing i've always wondered uh, about uh, the brahmin and you know their their political movement like you, you pointed out before they did not agree with jacksonian democracy and that's you know that goes back to the conflict between Jackson himself and one of the sons of one of the sons of the you know biggest biggest men in Massachusetts. Well, that seems almost at odds with things like the Fifteenth Amendment and later popular sovereignty ideas that now we very closely um, associate with, well, like the late Republic well, the, the Republican Party at the time. Like, how, how, do you, how do you, like, how does that square? I, I, I've never understood that.
2: Well, so it's complicated. I, I guess I, the best way to explain it is you had the Puritans with their own system that had evolved based on congregations mm-hmm. and that became a small town meeting. Their model, their idea model was you had your little town of self-sorted people with a minister. And that was a democracy within itself in that everybody, the men, adult men, could all participate in that community, go to the town meeting um, and have representation, um, but it wasn't a pure majoritarian democracy. That you know, it was you, it was still more democracy than had been present pretty much anywhere else, and they considered that a big success. Um, but they were they was in a republican form of government. Um, as things be changed, and other states didn't have that exact same arrangement, so they were more open to it, and they tried to cultivate and find ways of bringing in people from the lower classes. Um, into this culture, making them into leaders, making them able to replicate kind of that setup on their own terms was kind of the way they were looking at it. Um, They wanted New England town meeting style government everywhere, ideally, Um, but they were not majoritarian democracy type people. The idea was that everybody in a community, the adult men, the citizens got to have a say, not like the nation as a whole, because it, it would be incoherent. Um, And they did not believe that that people could be trusted to just do it without training and cultivation and 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 strong leadership and a tradition, a civil religion, and all that. So it was really though more the Democrats always were into popular sovereignty, Um, (laughs) who wanted to give everything up to majority vote, and who cared very much about everyone having the vote as soon as possible. The Republicans were fine with saying, we don't think that's the best idea. We, we do, we're not Democrats, we're Republicans and people share representation, but that can mean different, different things. Um, so yeah, that was just, uh, the difference and they were in the Massachusetts, um, the Brahmins, the Massachusetts Republicans were very elitist relative to everybody else for sure.
0: Was it a good life to be a WASP elite woman?
2: Um I would say yes. Uh, that's kind of the tension there is it, it's true that they um were less likely to give women um rights because they believed they had a di- they they occupied a different social role and men could represent them. Um, but women in Massachusetts were always like exceptionally literate. They were involved in in many causes. They if you wanted to have an active life, you know, in, whether an in intellectual life or being involved in different causes or you know whatever you could do that for the most part in massachusetts better than you could most other places they, they they very much encouraged women to be cultivated to to be to be educated to have um to be to participate and to have a strong conscience and and play a social role it just was a, they just had a different conception of what that meant and it didn't include um, participation in politics in part because again they thought men could your husband could be the voting for the household so there was no need. And in in second part, in which I think is more interesting in and I'd say is their version of political culture was premised on like extreme verbal combat. Like that's what they did instead of physical combat. And they were therefore very uncomfortable bringing women into the public sphere because they were brutal. Um and I think, you know, they were they were they were the ones who were the free speech fanatics who gave us these extremes free speech laws and who fought very much for uh, you should always be able to speak your mind, um, was a big thing for them. And that I think we've seen it's it's harder to do that, I think, when you have women in the public sphere. Um, it just is it, it just changes the dynamics. Um even, even most men found them hard to deal with. <laughs> <laughs>
0: these were the these were the men who invented football, right?
2: Well the others, or
0: no, I or, mean the Football comes from like uh Harvard, right? I mean like American football. Uh, yes. Most people consider this the most brutal and warlike sport ever created.
2: Yes, that um I was reading something on that. Um I don't think Boston had much to do with creating the brutality of the sport even though I think there was some roots there. I think that was other people coming into Harvard. Um but <laughs> it but uh they they were very very verbally – um aggressive and provocative and that was their kind of whole thing was like provocative speech it was leadership and actually talking about the civil rights thing and i was reading something interesting about it i kept noticing that they talk about that after the civil rights act was passed a lot of people um particularly like southerners became upset by um a video of um a black man who was being very militant and at a rally and kind of just saying very very provocative things and they, they said the people passing around the video were from boston they were laughing and then all these accounts are like start to say something about you know the liberals and their recklessness but that doesn't make any sense why were they why were they laughing and showing it to everybody um the question would be because they thought that is a help. they would have recognized that as oh, it's, it's great, that's how you... Part- they're they're now participating now that they have rights, they're participating in our political culture, which involves men being very um, assertive and aggressive and integrating themselves into the community by asserting themselves. Like, they wouldn't have seen that as threatening in the same way that apparently a lot of the other people saw it as threatening. Like, I really don't think they did. Um, and I think there was that was part of the cultural disconnect here.
0: I've heard this about Boston. Even not now but like maybe into the 80s or whatever I read this somewhere that like the average person in Boston you would expect like an average man they read the paper they had loud opinions about politics and shit like that
2: Mm -hmm. yeah I mean like um, Malcolm X and Louis Farrakhan were both from they both spent a lot of their youth in like a Puritan ex-Puritan community that I think influenced what some of the developments that that, that happened, and, and just the, this this tradition. Um, and, and Martin Luther King also came up to Boston, and studied the tradition of um being very intense with the the rhetoric and the, the sermonizing, and using that as a way to claim power, um, and to be provocative, and use that as a way to get attention. Like that was all very much part of the culture, um, Boston Brahmin culture, and they thought it was great. They 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 liked seeing other people assert themselves that way and they were not bothered by, um, verbal aggression. Uh, they saw it as in fact, a positive, healthy sign of, you know, in certain contexts, um, that was their ideal of what politics should be like. And that has caused, um, in the 19th century, everyone kind of understood that whether they liked it or not, it was like, okay, obviously that's, that's how Boston is. Um, in the 20th century, that started to become, a real issue where a lot of other states just were just sensitive and couldn't handle it and and uh, it seems to caused a ton of problems and I the, the south was not for the most part um they were not the ones whining for the most part it was but it was you know, the west and some other um places dc new york they just could not deal with it they couldn't understand it and they they got all offended and and then it caused problems in other areas too because they didn't understand the vision here which involved a lot of um, fighting it out hashing it out um, not being afraid to have these kind of difficult conversations um, and not especially with the issue of civil rights they expected a certain amount of obviously black Americans are going to be angry about you know what had happened and they were going to integrate themselves into the political community by asserting their interests and that was going to be an adjustment um, and they were expecting that
0: is there a macho element to this
3: oh I mean, I know, yes. I, I know you've seen 1776, right? I'm not not you, Bob Beef. I'm talking to Carrie. Yes, I have. Right. I I I don't I don't. This is coming shock. I don't like musicals. I I like that musical, and like the 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 gag that runs throughout the whole thing is that nobody can stand John Adams because he's like this is loud, obnoxious. Is it, one of his yeah. songs is like "I'm Obnoxious" and dislike. you know this. And it's not, it's not unmasculine presented in the play. It's not unmasculine, but it's also not really masculine. It's kind of, it's kind of fussy and and he's going to stand up. and He's going to talk whether you like it or not.
2: (laughs) Yes. I wouldn't call it fussy though. The thing is I would say that was Boston masculinity, which was not premised. Again, you have this clerical class. They're not going to fight each other physically. They fought, you know, verbal and religious battles. Right. So you get that zealotry that that um you know kind of out type typing and and but it was not fussy and it was not about being sensitive or being um uh, it, it, it was interdirected it was it was like it, these people just did not care like i mean they were gonna they had their cause and they were gonna say what they wanted and that was what their they would listen to their conscience, and that was what a man did. That's what a man did. Th- this he didn't care about what other people thought he did, but was right. <laughs> he defended that was that was their whole culture. So that is actually my I should mention that's my favorite thing I like about them in this compared to this new culture of um yeah they really like did not believe that you should worry about what anyone else um thought, and they believed that you should speak up, and that was like just just how they were. They did not believe in any type of speech policing or or political correctness or being deferential um, or being sensitive about that stuff to them it was sticks and stones type thing like they you know obviously they believed that you had to behave within moral and honorable grounds and be reasonable but that's a different issue than do you have a right to say you know say something and they always were in favor of speaking up and yeah that was what they were famous for
0: well that that's um Well, uh, have you ever heard of the New York society, uh, for the suppression of vice yeah. <laughs> is that different from them? I mean, cause, um,
2: yes, that well, first of all, New York, very different. Um, but to the extent it did take over someone in Massachusetts, that was mostly the lower class Yankees who were not very... The, I mean, lower class people in general like are going to be more conservative about that sort of thing, more scandalized. Like, you basically had these new things showing up and people in, you know, more rural areas, simpler people were like, what is this? Um And you had Catholics, uh, uh, the Irish Catholics were also asserting some morality and then the Yankees are trying to punch the Catholics. So whatever you got into this whole thing and they didn't like the women's rights. And so that was seen as connecting to this. So you had all these different moral panics that went into it, but that was never really a, a Brahmin um, thing. They, they actually didn't like that sort of thing for the most part. They were not into these um, crusades that meddled too much with people's personal lives.
0: It makes sense. I, <clears throat> it's not important, but uh, the individual case I saw, it was posited as something it's like, these snooty wasps were, uh, well, I was looking at an individual case. It was a Southern gentleman, slave owner, writing a scandalous book. And in the book, there was a, um, something scandalous happened and that's all it's all I heard about. It and it's like, oh, well the Northerners were scandalizers. You come to find out, uh, the part in the book was, uh, was, it was making fun of the Pope and you're just thinking like, wait a minute. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
3: so you don't think banned, like you know, banned in Boston that was a Puritan
2: that thing was, that you don't think that was, was- not a, it was mostly the lower class Yankees and the Catholics um, <laughs> to the extent there was support from that it, the, Boston generally was ex- radically against like censorship. There was the exception though was um, obscenity to some extent um, if things were considered, especially if it was like for common consumption or like children or whatever. If you had like really degrading or um, kind of like sexually explicit and stuff like that was often what triggered it. it. But it wouldn't be just like, we didn't like this idea or like, it wasn't usually about like something silly. It was usually something that was considered like just degrading in a way that was kind of, there was no excuse for. And, um, that was what they tended to ban.
0: Have you seen a uh, viral video titled POV? You're walking in Boston, minding your own business. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> it's got millions of views. There's like a a leftist is walking in Boston during the height of the lockdowns, and he's walking past a bar, and he's filming this, and he's he's gonna make a video saying, "Look at these people! They're at a bar, and we're supposed to be under the lockdown." And um, two Bos- two Bostonian gentlemen approach him, and
3: uh- sounded South Bostonian, didn't they?
0: Yeah, they, I think they, I mean, they were, they were clearly, you know, they all had Patriots gear on, they were clearly lower, lower class. Uh, but they, uh, they called him a pussy and was like, Oh, you're going to call your mother. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. You, By the, I mean, by the way, the only reason I bring that up and that thing you were talking about earlier with, the, you know, you, you talking shit a lot, which by the way, I mean, that's kind of right up mm-hmm. our alley. We're podcasters, but that's not the most Southern thing in the world, especially that time period. Like, you could just talk shit to people because they'd shoot you.
2: <laughs> right, right. So yeah, in that, that the Southern culture—it wasn't. I mean, people. It wasn't that people didn't say anything, but you had more of a retaliation, the, the honor culture. Whereas the, um, the I would say the Puritans had a different honor culture. The, the way their honor culture was around the idea that that the, that it was the right thing to do to always express yourself. That was not an insult to express yourself. It was not about other people. So being tough enough to take that was part of what being, was part of being honorable was. And like where they would have gotten angry would be if you tried to interfere with their their ability to express themselves or called their motives into question um, would be more likely to prompt a response. But they had kind of worked out a way to um, avoid, because like I said, they, there were so many priestly competitions and holding a spiral type things like they had a way of de-escalating and, and so for that reason they tended to be relatively classy in their um in their verbal like like emerson type style like emerson was somehow always kind of classy in his provocativeness and outrageousness and um for the most part you know so he could it, it came across differently who's, um, em, who's emerson Ralph of emerson um the writer uh, who was a Brahmin um that the the rhetorical combativeness of the abolitionists and whatever was was on the classier side what you got then was though the, but the culture was was of outrageous speech you the, then when the irish came in yeah i would say that that became that's part of what they internalized and so then you get like on one end southy. so that's what it looks like when you know it's not classy um but i don't think those are two different things like i think that was right. a,
0: Right, they're, they're getting some of that from those guys.
2: Yeah, and the Brahmins would not have. I mean, they they would have said certain things were vulgar or whatever, but they wouldn't have. They would have. They were actually impressed by that level of the confidence the willingness to speak out and be tough, you know, verbally and to call that out. I mean, look, I was not a fan of this COVID response, and I know that you know the Brahmins would have been like, take off that mask and it, it just it <laughs> man up. Like, I mean, they would have. They would have said it more nicely than the Southie guys, but like that attitude. Was real. I mean, you know, they didn't wouldn't have any had any more patience with it, and um, you know, it is what it is.
3: Like, well, since you know, Adams is a John Adams is a you know very important figure. uh, Tried to throw his political enemies in jail, right? You know, for writing mean things about him in a newspaper. Was by the way, you you love Adams? Admit it. John Adams. Yes. Yeah, I, I just told you I have watched 1776 like ten yeah, times. Yeah, but you didn't
0: just fully come mm-hmm. out and admit it.
3: But yeah, I, 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 if you have a if you're on a podcast, you have to like John Adams because like you're you're like you're some parts are like I just can't stand it. I have to get I have to put put this microphone on and I have to yeah pour my dumb opinions over the masses and I just can't help it. It's just a part of my process, and you have know, to deal with it. It's so like, yeah, everybody's a little bit in this business is a little bit John Adams. Did that, mm-hmm. well, my question was does what, what, you know, the way he did as president, was it disapproved of by, because like it doesn't really jive with, with that attitude?
2: Yeah, so I think that was not seen as a, something as a free speech issue. It was seen as a loyalty issue. Like, this is before it <laughs> all got hashed out. What are we talking about? You know, it was seen as, um, the the, uh, the you're talking about when he had his alien and Tradition acts, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was controversial in Boston, and it it was later basically denounced um, by the Boston authorities. Like for the Brahmins, for years afterwards, would be like, remember when that mistake happened? Like it was the same when they do the witch trials. Like remember, like that that was something that we should remember not to do again. Like that's a lesson. They were the ones who would lead with, that's not appropriate, and they they doubled down on their free speech um, commitments as a result of that they saw that as kind of an embarrassment at the time that was you know early on the, the, the free speech norms were not quite as evolved the church was still in charge and you um, also had he would have seen that as not dealing with a speech issue but as dealing with a, beha- a treasonous behavior and that's where the line can be hard to draw um, yeah, and bo- then Jefferson
3: said it was a free, <laughs> First Amendment issue. Well, you made a good point. Not everybody listens to this is American. Like, the Alien Sedition Act, part of it, it made it illegal for you to say mean things about people in the government. Like, straight up illegal. <laughs> if it was malicious, you could be thrown in jail for say, for saying this. Like, if you said something mean about the President of the United States, you could be put in, in you know, uh, in the lockup. And, I'm,
0: a, I'm American. I didn't know that.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, our, our, you know, our our, our hashtag our guy Thomas Jefferson, you know, did away with it immediately. To become uh,
1: uh yes, when he sorry. became president. But I
2: would say to the in defense of Adams, I would say that even though that was true, I'm I am almost positive it was not motivated by the fact that he was bothered by criticism personally. <laughs> he saw it as threatening to his to to the to you know his power. Probably was what was going on there. What I like about Dustin Romans is they literally just do not get. Hurt feelings <laughs> off to speech, like they do not care. If, yeah, so, if like, you, read, yeah.
3: you know, if you read them and like their person works, they do, they they come off as uh, part of my language too autistic to have to have feelings. And, yeah. And, and, yeah. and also, in his defense, since we're supposed to say nice things, the things that people wrote about their opponents in newspapers in the in like the 18th and 19th century. It would make Facebook comments today look really civilized. Know. Like they would write crazy, like, you know, like, hey, maybe this guy likes to have sex with his relatives, or, you know, <laughs> yeah. John Adams yeah, is I'm a sure. hermaphrodite, you know, stuff like that. Like, that's I'm
2: so sick of the hysteria over this, the idea, like the attempt to make it so that um, American political discourse is genteel and never, <laughs> um, never poetic or never um, non literal or it's just like, what, what political culture is there? That's why I'm getting so angry. I'm like, I see this <laughs> as the, we had a political culture built on this outrageous, provocative speech tradition, um, you know, going out and debating. And there was no, if you couldn't take it, it was pathetic. And I still feel that way. And, you know, I'm not, I'm a pretty sensitive person overall, but like, I really do believe that that's necessary. And I li- I enjoy that culture. Uh, you know, I the B in Boston, like the, the guys in Southeast, still see it. Um, I don't want that. I don't, I don't, understand where people come in trying to act like they can they can make that go away it's so unnatural and so just obviously at odds with our traditions
3: one way these people were so much smarter than us too is like they knew that journalists were the scum of the earth everybody mm-hmm. and everybody in like early and like late 18th and early 19th century politics they just knew journalism is entirely fake it's stuff that people paid you know to write lies about you and you uh, uh, being a newspaper man wasn't really a high status job in in the in the early Republic right. era it was the opposite it's like really? you Yeah, you're a sleaze merchant and everybody knows it. It didn't become respectable until probably the late 19th century.
2: Right. And I would say the one other thing I would say that's good about the Boston Brahmins was they understood, and I don't know what has gone on now, but they understood the elites, the ruling elite's job was to make people want to follow them by providing good, attractive leadership and, you know, being talented enough to get ahead of these problems, these awkward discussions, these journalistic crises. They they did not expect people to, um, the public to just listen to experts or listen to the media like they didn't with even if it was even if it makes no sense and is terrible to read like like I have no idea this attitude now where like you don't have to earn the respect of the people like obviously in any situation you know th- th- at some extent the the you have power people are at your mercy but but all those situations to keep power you have to. Keep some support. You have to do some, make some effort to be appealing. Like you, in some way, you have to give back. Like the the Brahmins were excellent at making sure people wanted to be led by them and making themselves attractive leaders. And they took that burden on themselves, that responsibility on themselves, to find ways to make that work. That is something that I really wish we saw more of. They were not. They didn't feel. They didn't. They were not easily um, shaken in their confidence, and they weren't quick to condemn the public. That if if there was an issue, they Found a way to make sure that they could still come out on top. Basically,
0: by the way, this is something the right has totally forgotten today. That they feel a lot. Of, I talked to a lot of people on the right who feel like uh, being leadership, being elite, being like being in the uh, a ruling aristocracy is something that you're just well. I just am one, and everyone's just supposed to do what yeah, I say. I
2: like, where does that come from? It's so bizarre to me.
0: It's it's completely it's fake. And like the uh, the way I always uh, look the thing, the example I always think of is if. Especially in World War II, you have these. Uh, I th- I like the because they look so. Uh, if you look at the the officers in the German uh, military, <laughs> you have you have like you have people that were part of the what was the the ruling aristocracy in the North Germany, the the Junkers. Junker. you have Junkers, and then you also have people who were uh, basically like middle class that got a bump up. Like who was the Desert Fox? rommel right so and if you look at like any of the ruling aristocracy people versus like the middle class people like rommel if you look at a picture of rommel he looks like a regular guy on a smoke break he's just like but if you look at the ruling aristocracy people they they they, you know they feel like they've got their chest out they got their beautifully uh they've got their mustache perfect and
3: they got that scar
0: the dueling scar they got a dueling scar they have a cape on they have the little (laughs) pocket watch. they got the monocle and like that stuff they don't um, it's easier to not do that stuff. There's uh, th- that's part of ruling, which by the way, uh it's too much to get into, but uh are, have you seen the movie um uh Born Rich? No. Okay. It's a uh, it's oh, the Johnson and Johnson family. That is a Boston Brahmin family, right?
2: I think so. Well, anyways. Yeah,
0: I I, so, Sorry, I keep going. Uh there's a scene where like in his, it's a b- crazy movie cuz Uh, like one of the heirs to the Johnson Johnson family. He like secretly videotapes uh, what it's like to be one of these people. And there's like a scene where he secretly videotapes his dad, like giving him the, uh, what you have to do, like being elite. He's like, you know, he's telling him like other people will look at you. You don't need to do this. You, need to, you
3: yeah. Don't be your old money. Don't be ostentatious. Don't you know? <laughs> don't be like Ivanka well, Trump, who is also in that documentary. Yeah, uh, but, but, okay, so let's. I, I want
0: to get the mission done here. So I want to love. I want to the in the least in this moment in this podcast. I want to love the Boston Brahmin, and so. Uh, <laughs> by the way, that thing.
3: Earlier, all order, buddy.
0: <laughs> by the way, the thing about the the chopping it up and stuff. Uh, whether or not that was a Southern culture, Well, I mean, that's a, that's like a, uh, a, a universal, uh, masculine thing of, of, of like among friends, like, a, you, I think a Southern fraternity, people would consider that like very Southern culture within a Southern fraternity among the men that are friends, they're going to be talking shit. That's a uh, mm-hmm. chopping it up. That's a very universal thing. But anyways, okay. So I want to love the Boston Robin. There's two things that could help me love them. So number one, um, those guys oh. duelled too,
3: by the way. They weren't like the, the run up the Civil War. People were th- both sides were threatening to have gunfights to the death. Well, wasn't like it wasn't like that. Like the, the people in Boston weren't partaking.
0: Well, you're, like, the, you're you're on it. This these two questions are going to go right there. Okay, so number one, where are the Boston Brahmins on the Second Amendment? I really love that Second Amendment. So <laughs> I'm, I'm just tell me the truth. Um,
2: I uh, so they. I mean they we the one, growing of Massachusetts. I never understood the gun control, gun control advocates and these militia hysteria. I mean, we grow up celebrating Lexington and Concord. It's everywhere. It's like that's mm-hmm. the best thing you can do is to get a militia together and go get some rifles and overthrow, you know, the British. <laughs> um, that's like that is still considered like at least until very very recently is glorified. You know, um, the revolutionary um, aspect of it. That being said so they definitely believed, had a strong belief in the right to self-defense and to revolution, but um, the nature of their, again, their like uh, congregational communities or whatever, uh, they, they did believe in in um had the right to own guns, but the nature of it doesn't really map well to our situation because generally what they would do is like the minister would keep the guns and when there was a problem, he would hand them out to the men in the community um, it wasn't considered something that they just the culture did wasn't one in which it was felt that everybody needed to have a gun on them all the time, but it was believed that every community needed to have access to arms in case they were attacked or, or needed to revolt or something. Um it just it just would happen more at the community level. And they did tend to ban guns in like Boston, like where there was a lot of like fighting, but they very much believed in the right to um have self-defense and to revolt against and, and they were very much against, if you didn't want to, if you believe the state was illegitimate, th- that was over. Um, they they did not believe that you had to defer to anything unjust, just because the, the state ordered you to do so. Um, so I would say they would generally be very strong on the Second Amendment, uh, but it's a little hard to tell because, like I said, the culture that there came from is not like, the, you know, it's not one that has like a bunch of AK forty sevens or whatever lying around, <laughs> it just is different.
3: When it comes to when it comes to guns and you're thinking about Massachusetts you gonna you have to understand. You know, by the time I, I don't know, let's say the early nineteenth century, you know, Massachusetts is not frontier territory anymore. That's right. pretty much that's pretty much over. If you're in Virginia, early nineteenth century you kind of you, you mean not maybe that's stretching it but like the you know the middle of, by the mi- 18, middle of 18th century this is still a frontier there are still people like uh indigenous yeah, peoples
2: a realistic setup in places like that would be to just have guns everywhere like i mean i think i think they would have appreciated that yeah, yeah. And
3: like because if we're talking massachusetts bay colony era when you know there's a there's a, <laughs> there's a genocidal like and this is one of the things that really annoys me about like when we talk about these genocide, genocidal wars against indigenous peoples. Like the genocide went both ways. Both the ba, uh, the Bay Colony and Jamestown nearly got wiped out several times, you know, during yes, the war. They, the, it wasn't the, a joke. The
2: Puritans tried, they wanted to assimilate the natives. They yeah. did not want to. And they, they, they brought several of them to Harvard. They learned the native yeah. American language, translated the Bible, brought them to Harvard. I mean, I'm not going to, you know, conflicts, other things went on, but like, they were much more so than other places, um, desirous of making it work, but it just didn't. No,
0: there's, there's nothing wrong with what you're saying. I mean, in in 2023, so the, the most horrific pictures in the world are considered these pictures of these, uh, uh, residential schools. You know, Mm -hmm. most people don't get that. Most of the time you just get killed. Uh, they right. they were yeah, literally not
2: an appreciation. Yeah, the baseline in these things is very ugly, and people like don't acknowledge that.
3: I'll say something very nice about about the my our Bay Colony brothers. Like the when the Bay Colony is established, like there is this idea that we're gonna we're gonna spread the word to the natives, and we're gonna like we're gonna you know integrate them in some way. Like <laughs> Jamestown is like. You know the scene in Saving in Private Ryan on Omaha Beach where the where the doors go down and like they're just coming out, guns blazing. Like that's kind of they what they were Jake,
0: eating, eating each other. Weeks. Yeah, yeah, brought
3: me. Uh, yes, that's true. But enslaving each other. Right. Um, yeah. That and it's like their relationship with the native population was different early on than the Massachusetts Bay. However,
2: yeah, Massachusetts has Thanksgiving and it made a lot of efforts <laughs> to try and memorialize and um, kind of atone for, for. There was obviously guilt over how that had worked out and they attempted to kind of fix the mythology to, I mean, our flag, the Massachusetts flag is a native American on it. Um, and there's native American memorials everywhere. And obviously it's named Massachusetts. I mean that like, there's still like, was many attempts to sort of honor the culture.
0: Merrick, if you could have a, a pistol made from any company, what would it be? It was, it was free. Uh, cult. Oh, Colt.
3: Oh, we well, want a government model. Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, here's all the here's all the gun companies that come from Massachusetts: <laughs> Colt, Smith and Wesson, Savage, Marlin, H and R, Mossberg, uh, like all
1: of them.
2: Yeah, um, I, I can say that. Ma- I mean, Massachusetts obviously it had a lot of industrial might early on, so that that makes sense. Um, but I I can say that Grove in Massachusetts. I mean, nobody ever. Made, talked about gun control. Nobody ever made it sound like it was Ill- illegitimate to own a gun. Like that was that was something that I was shocked by when I encountered it. Like the uh, the idea that there was no there was nothing considered wrong with with owning a gun. Um, but I I basically I don't like I'd never really seen a gun until I, in person until like um, a few years ago when a relative got one. Uh, <laughs> what runs with guns? Like like they don't like there's no um taboo on it, but nobody but there is a taboo on running around wildly with guns and like and making it a gun culture like you're supposed to have it <laughs> walk away from necessity for some purpose and nobody appears to have there are very few people who have them like and, and and it is kind of difficult to get one but that's because we're still using an old model where the police chief um gets to like look into it and decide which was when it was a high trust society still following puritan morals like that was fine um, nowadays that's become more of an issue
0: well all these guns came from massachusetts and people like samuel colt (laughs) were not just like uh not just like a, a a guy interested in factories i mean these people were kind of like evangelists in terms of guns, and he was like going to a Congregationalist church in Massachusetts and stuff. I, I don't know, but anyway, sorry, Merrick, do you have anything else on that? Yeah, the, they're
2: definitely not anti-gun. They're definitely not anti-gun. They just don't have like a conspicuous gu- gun culture.
0: If all these gun companies come from there, I mean, well, well, anyway, sorry. Uh, anyways, Mer- oh, yeah, but
2: they're selling them, you know, uh, to other places.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. That's uh, The other part of the story is Massachusetts used to be the home of gun manufacturing in the United States. All these, these companies have left in the past 20 years or so because of... Uh, uh you know uh, gun control regulation up north
3: Massachusetts and Virginia are kind of sister states they're both the first you know first colonies mm-hmm. uh our flag is a uh, you know <laughs> a roman virtue figure with a spear standing over the dead body of king george you yeah. say it's a different vibe there, there there's different ways you there're different ways that you can settle
1: mm-hmm.
0: now okay now i'm i'm good on the guns i like that now um <laughs> i'm a male and i do you know um uh, sir Walter
1: Raleigh
0: yes he is this uh I don't know a, a badass guy that people can aspire the men can aspire to you can say oh if sir Walter Raleigh was part of this sort of uh time period and this place and these group of people well I would have loved to be sir Walter Raleigh um he was a <laughs> you know he was a a, a ladies man explorer etc
1: yeah guy that,
3: the cl- allegedly the queen's lover. That was one of the things people said about it, right?
1: hmm
3: Now, that's a high bar to live up to, but
0: can you give me a individual Boston Brahmin? Because we haven't talked about any particular individuals, but who is just a really cool, badass, notable, but notable in that way of being uh, kind of a badass, cool, masculine, manly man who was also a Boston Brahmin? Can you think of anyone like that?
2: Uh, no, I think, I think they'd admit that's not the type of character they produced. I mean, oh, I think no. they produced in many ways, like certain equivalents to it, but it, there was not, they were not known for um, sort of the aggression and the um, traditional masculinity. Like I said, they weren't, a lot of them were very tough, and they were very patriarchal, but they tended to express it you know their their way of seeking power was more like religious or okay like, okay, culture, okay, you know okay,
0: well, not everybody is like <laughs> us, I mean we're kind of knuckle jack, <laughs> yeah, we're kind of yeah. knuckle draggers and not everyone looks up to <laughs> so you tell me someone that that you think is someone people should look up to, just in any individual, Boston Brahmin
2: um. I mean, I think uh, most of them are 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 impressive. Um, you know, I'm a fan of Emerson. Um, I think he's he he was a good example of many of the traits. Not easy. He's not an easy guy to summarize, uh, but he was born to the uh, clerical class. He was himself trained as a minister, but he um, left the ministry um, because he was. Uh, this was at the time where like the church had like sort of fallen apart and like wasn't clear what religion they were. And, and like, he basically kind of lost his, he wasn't, he didn't believe in the what the church was teaching and he didn't want to be dishonest about that in, in his preaching. So he became, he sort of then became a famous um, writer and lecturer. Um, but in his work, he used him as for New England Transcendentalism type of philosophy. Uh, it was in many ways a, revision of uh, in the you know the period tradition of adaptation sort of taking the period traditions and the period religion and trying to adapt them to the modern world he, he realized that the church had fallen apart that the authority of the clergy was it was falling and that massachusetts was in trouble um and he kind of i think determined to try and find a, a new route to um making these things work in a new path for himself. And he, I think, did a very good job at that and became essentially the most famous like, public intellectual in America, certainly of the 19th century, and one of the most famous figures of that time, um, very influential in many ways. Um, and he really articulated, I think, uh, um, a lot of these traditions in a way that was more secular and was more modern and people could therefore relate to them um, and and so he kind of mainstreamed them into the culture um, and helped it survive. Would be how I would how I would put that.
3: If you turn back the well, if you turn back the clock to the uh, early 19th century, America is still kind of it is a backwater, considered a backwater by Europe. They didn't really they they would always pretty much the own on us was that we never produce any kind of good writer or any philosopher, anything. Mm-hmm. Nothing of value had ever come from America. Would you, Carrie, would you say that he was one of the earlier people who was admired by Europeans as a great thinker?
2: Yes, he was one of the first that really um, became a big, was taken seriously as, like, an intellectual over there as a, as, and, and he, it, it's unfortunate this has been downplayed so much, but, like, he really did create a a literary tradition for America that we had, (laughs) and we had not had that until um, that point. Um, He got that movement going and it was quite a movement. And and there's this kind of this idea, like it's been downplayed that America still doesn't have literature or whatever. It's like, well, yeah, we do. But like, you have to look at it. Like the literature we have is in in the transcendentalist tradition in one way or another that he started, like, that's where the, that's where you're going to find it. Like, even like I'm a big fan of invisible man by Ralph Ellison, um, which I think is one of the best American novels and that's written in the transcendentalist tradition. Um, you know, a lot of that, that is the literary tradition that we have. And like, it's not really acknowledged. We're not taught it as much anymore. That was the sort of thing that kept cohesion together. Not that it was very new Englandy, but the point was that you could build on it, add to it over time. Um, but we did need to have some sort of um, tradition to, to get going an identity to start with and he got that ball rolling i think in a very impressive way
3: i'm sorry i was laughing because and i've probably mentioned this before on the podcast but you I, i'm sure you heard that i read i read that book in like seventh eighth grade something like that and for a book report and my teacher was so proud of me she's like oh man I, i'm so happy you're taking an interest in this This is such a good book you're gonna love you know <laughs> Invisible Man. I, when I picked the book, out, I literally thought it was going to be about like you know, like the H.G. Wells style. Here's yeah. a guy who turned invisible, and I was so confused. And uh, when yeah. I started reading, like, why is there a black guy having a boxing match? What's what, what's what's going on
1: here?
2: It and I it's was really hard to understand. Like, and for high schooler, like, there's they can't just be giving it. Yeah, they they didn't high schoolers gonna read and understand that has always been wild and unrealistic, especially now when we don't have they don't teach you the cultural traditions that he's building on so you can appreciate that (laughs) it's a great book but i totally understand yeah, I picked it out.
3: Yeah, it would have made no sense. And I and I got, she was so complimentary. I was embarrassed into just reading the whole thing and doing a report on it. And I just, I, I mean, I was, you know, I was like 12 years old or whatever at the time. I hated the book. This is boring. I hate doing this. <laughs> so every time I hear that, like it's like, this is one of the great works of American literature. I'm like, I'm just still disappointed that he didn't turn invisible and, you know, ha- have yeah, shenanigans. I get, I get it.
2: uh It, 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 I think if you read it again now, you would not think it was boring, but it, it was very confusing and uh, very provocative and elaborate and all these allusions that if you don't really understand, if you're not in the literary tradition, it won't make any sense. Um, but yeah, um, and, um, and his name, he was named Ralph Waldo Ellison. His father um, had been a child of slaves in South Carolina they moved during reconstruction to Oklahoma and they were kind of part of the African-American elite there. And he, a lot of the kids in that community were named after Emerson. That was a common thing um, to have um, uh, the freedmen who were until, uh, who were kind of the more elite ones, the more educated ones often named their kids after Emerson because he was kind of represented power and achievement and liberation and hope for success as a, academic or writer which obviously ellison achieved
0: i can understand i went back and read read a book that i loved when i was a teenager (laughs) i went back and read it and i was like man this is the worst schlock i've ever it was just like it was was embarrassing i was like man i was a moron
3: well i'd say something nice about the wasps too you know and and the teacher that i mentioned like uh, (sighs) later on in, in high school you would i would i saw english teachers who just simply did not did not care about their job and like they'd read like a YA novel, like not even the class read, like they'd read it out loud or something. Just, just, you know, just punching the clock. The, the people who <laughs> I, I'm not, I'm not a fan of transcendentalism, but I am a fan of people who really care about stuff like this and have, like they mm-hmm. do have an ethos that they like, they're not just
2: right.
3: The, the, the biggest difference between the education system today and even even if I was to say something nice about Elliot, the one that he envisioned, if not the one that he created, was the idea like this is important. It's it's important for you, for not only for you psychologically, but perhaps spiritually, for you to understand these things, for you to become en- enlightened. Like that was a very mm-hmm. a, a very I don't say American thing because. We're such a young country and such a lib- like you, know, liberal in the classical sense. Country. This is this was something that was that has certainly, I feel, has been lost. It's been replaced yeah. by crude political concepts that I think both the Brahmins and Cavaliers and people, like you know, I guess, mentally ill Midwestern Midwestern Tods would have would have agreed. Like this is just nonsense. Mm-hmm. You can't. You can't. I, I, a ten-year-old should have a better understanding of literature than the average high school graduate. My, I, I've heard that k- kids going into college today just have to be taught remedial, remedial like English, and I don't mean like speaking languages to understand, uh, like understand literature. It just it's it's vanished for in, into the ether, and uh, you know, going back to to Adams. I think this is like they 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 got a little ahead of themselves with the scientific education stuff. Like mm-hmm. he didn't realize because he had a classical education how important that is.
2: They they it was right. just a, it was That's taken. What happened? Yeah. they're criticized for devaluing, you know, the the classical education and the need for knowledge. But I think what you have to understand is like their culture was so obsessed with reading and academics that it was unimaginable to them that you yeah. didn't just pick this up like most of their learning happened outside of school because they read all the time so to them it was just like breathing so they couldn't imagine someplace where you weren't rooted in traditions and um literature and that's why they kind of misjudge it and yes whether or not you know you personally enjoy their their literature or want to read as much as they do i think it's certainly something good about them was they were extremely passionate extremely dedicated to um to creating things and to doing it well and to you know, um, trying to, to express something and they had a real passion for learning. I mean, it, 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 the passion and the dedication to it and the truth orientation, um, just really radiates from it. Um, and it's, it's inspiring, you know, to see that level of commitment, that level of effort, how much they've just enjoyed it for themselves. Um, I, I think that was something that really set them apart. I mean, they just couldn't help themselves always trying to create something new, do something better. Like, that was something that I think was very attractive about
0: them. Uh, February 1st, 2023, Massachusetts lawmakers refile legislation to expand non-English language state resources. And it goes on. that uh, They're basically going to make it so you don't really have to speak English to be part of the Massachusetts government. More more broadly, not just, you know, providing the ballot in Spanish or whatever. Basically, public-facing state agencies can do anything and without the English language. That just sounds so bizarre to me because, like, you know, I thought, I don't know if it's specifically the Brahmin, but the religious thing from the New England was, like, if you can't read the Bible yourself, you're going to go to hell.
2: Go. the weird thing on that is, um, like, when early immigration restrictions were debated, Boston was actually willing to allow people who were literate in any language in— but no illiterate people. So, like, if you were an illiterate Englishman, like, they didn't want you. But if you, like, wrote, I don't know, Sanskrit or something, I mean, they, like, I mean, literally, like, it, like they, languages that had no, that no one knew how to read, they, because they were so obsessed with learning and they were often uh, multilingual, like, they wanted to bring in new languages. Maybe they could make the guy a professor at Harvard, ever. Like, to them, the moral value attached to respect for literacy and, and academic drive, not the particular language. So they were kind of weird about that. They would not have been like English only type people because they didn't they believe that people should be multilingual and they um they had so much respect for for the written, like different written cultures. But they also would have I mean it's complicated, but they would have certainly expected that public life be conducted in a language that you know, the people being part of a community in which everyone can understand each other um, and and are properly integrated, would also have been of a concern to them. Um, I don't know the exact details of these bills and I do not know what is going on right now, unless it's political culture. I really, it's hard to tell, it doesn't look good. Um, but the, it, it's just a lot of different things going on. We, after Ted basically Ted Kennedy died, um, Mermanino died a little bit after that, they had been in charge forever. That's how we do it in Boston. We have these people that you just kind of trusted and they handled the whole thing for decades. They died within a short period of time. And then the basically it looks like the progressive national Dems kind of moved in. And that is not a tradition that we've ever had before. Um, the Kennedy Democrats are very di- different than that. And I don't know exactly how that's going to play out um, or what, you know, I don't have strong opinions necessarily on whether or not to have a ballot in English or whatever, uh, but <laughs> well, it, wasn't it, the it definitely seems like they're, they're not, I don't think they're doing the, the best, uh, making the best <laughs> decisions, and they're certainly not compatible with what I understood Massachusetts' culture to be, you know.
3: Well, I mean, here's one hint about how they would have felt about it, and I'm half-joking because, like, obviously this was very cynical political maneuvering, but in the 19th century before the before the Mexican American War there was pretty much a debate in the United States whether we should become involved in 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 what was happening in Texas and Mm. northern Mexico. And there were a lot there were people in the South who wanted to to take over pretty much all of Mexico and and Cuba and other places like that. And there were people, there were politicians in the north who said, "This is absolutely not going to be permitted. We're not going to add a bunch of Spanish-speaking Papists to the United States. That would be that would be a sin. Instead, what we should do is invade, invade Canada and, and take over the entire Oregon country. You know, that's how we should expand. There was an agreement that we should definitely expand militarily." But it went along those lines. Now I don't, you know, like I said, it, that was really a kind of a cynical slave versus free state thing. But yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm pretty sure we know where they come down on side of should the person at the DM, the working at the D M B speak English. They would probably say yes because I don't see how yeah, you can have really? you can have the city on the hill if no one can speak, the, even speak the same language. None of this stuff, like, you know, the, the world of the mind doesn't right. work if, if you don't
1: even what, have what this. What
2: they would have done was had English language classes readily available and they would have been doing outreach to immigrants to make sure that we would be able to make it work. I mean, like, obviously the whole thing with the... I mean, they, Boston was totally replaced by Irish people, you know, halfway through the 19th century. They didn't, they <laughs> we're not expecting that. They didn't want it. They didn't like it. But the fact of the matter is they made it work with relatively little, little problems. I mean, relative to what could have happened. Um, it, 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 they successfully passed on their culture. They successfully transitioned Boston over to the Irish. And it went, you know, all things considered, well, they were good at assimilating people even when they didn't want to, Um, you know, and uh, and and they believed that was their duty and they did it. And that's, I think, another positive thing about them. Um, So, yeah, that's kind of the moral point of saying it's not so much about the individual policy, but about the fact that their first priority would always have been is everybody on the same page. Do we have a healthy civic culture? Are we upholding our traditions? You know, whatever that required, they would have been actively working for that and so like i know i'm child immigrants like I, I don't have any issue with immigration itself like as long as you know that healthy structure is there which it has been generally they, i don't know now i mean it's not even really an immigration issue i mean they've come kind of, they don't seem to be following the culture trying to create the cohesion or using our practices that's the whole thing is just kind of <laughs> Gone in the public eye, at least. I don't know what's going to happen with that, but yeah, it's very different now. Yeah, I mean, um, it's definitely not being run as it was.
3: There's not the impetus from the elites to do this. The fact they pushed in the opposite direction, but also, I I think, and maybe you can weigh in on this because this has just been a theory of mine. Like you, know, New York, compare New York, this, this New York State and New York City, especially to Boston, and you, like, Boston did have this transition that more more or less went went well. New York. Had a lot more problems, and I think that was simply a volume issue. New York had a larger volume of immigrants in the 19th century, and it caused a hell of a lot of problems. That Boston had a lot too, but not in, in anywhere. I don't think it was anywhere near the volume that New York experienced. It's no, just, but
2: they did get them all at once in a particular population that kind of, and they had none before. so yeah. and they had, and they they had a very strong expectation of how they're were, they weren't expecting any of this. So to them, this was, you know, Catholics were suddenly there. They were never expecting that. Whereas New York was set up as a commercial immigration hub. It was, you didn't, it wasn't as much of a shock, but yes, they had more, and they had nobody also trying to make it work either, or who really could. And the bigger thing was they had different types of immigrants. So that both made it easier in some ways and more like natural, but it also um, made it harder to. Um, to figure out what should be done to create a lot of competition and fractiousness. And, um, you didn't have a clear, um, it was just a very, it, you just had way more craziness going on and way more and less cohesion in New York to begin with. What bothers me about the New York thing is they're constantly, New York press constantly talks about how awful massachusetts was and the, the, uh, what the <laughs> irish was in the, but the, turns it i cannot I, I cannot stand it coming from the, the states that do this have horrendous records so much worse than anything boston covers. conflict. and they go <laughs> on and lectures on it i just i, I don't really care because it just baffles me like just it's like are you kidding me like i mean it, just look at the records of some of these states it's like you have like you know like riots every week and like you, they, they find the one time there was a riot and then I think it was just like gigantic defining scandal that like defined the WASP culture. And it's like, what are you talking about? Like, it just drives me so crazy. California does it too. It's like, California, like, just California, they're Republicans after the Civil War when Sumner was still in the Senate would be like, the Declaration of Independence, like we don't do that literally, right? Like we can just exclude the Chinese, right? It's like, it's like they missed the entire Civil War. Like they missed the entire thing. They'd never heard any of this. I mean, they just were like, just not with it. Um, so when I I hear like, oh, you know, no matter what it is, whether it's from the left doing the whole like, oh my God, wasps are so oppressive, or it's like the right being like, oh, the the liberal utopians who can't do anything right and cause all this chaos, and and they're you know, what Boston is a better run place than any than pretty much anywhere else in in many ways. It's it's absurd to me that they're portrayed as some sort of governance failure whether you like them or not i mean they kept their society going
0: one easy question and then one uh really difficult question to i think end on so america have you got anything else
2: yeah
3: i want to put it on the spot before we go uh people keep asking us about books we should that they should read and they shouldn't do that because that's not really our that's not necessarily in our wheelhouse so if you but you could tell somebody just say one or two or, or as many as you like books that they should read to have a better understanding of uh, the Brahmin, what, whatever, whatever, you, whatever comes to mind. For you. Merrick
0: Merrick reads books, and this is that kind of thing. Like if if you ask someone that likes if they like classical music, and they say yes, that means they do, they don't. If you if you ask them, and they're like, "I think Beethoven is trash," you know, that means they love <laughs> classical music. So, uh, but yes, uh,
2: there aren't a ton of books on this specifically or they're a little bit, they don't necessarily appear to be books about this, but if you look at well, if you go to archive.org and you search for Boston Brahmins, there's interesting books that pop up. Um, some The Proper Bostonians is an older one that gets into it. Um, the Digby Bozell book appeared in uh, Boston and Quaker Philadelphia or whatever it is. Um, uh, the, that one that coined the term wasp is Another. Um the um uh Michael baron Knox book that came out about Wasp recently is another. The um see there's if you look if you go to archive.org and look for it, there's more uh, the standing order is one that's kind of like on early Puritan culture. There are a lot of like essays and like like things that get at it. Well, Perry Miller, New England Mind, probably gets into this a little bit, but there are a little there are a lot of essays that like deal with certain parts of it. But they but they're not like the term like Boston Brahminist is itself like well it was coined a while ago, but it wasn't used a lot until like probably around the same time WASP was. So it like a lot of it isn't new. Many like proper Bostonians analyzes these people. Um, that's they called them proper Bostonians.
0: or you can read ke.substack.com <laughs> you should follow Carrie 62189 kesubstack.com uh, if you're listening to this and you're part of a magazine that publishes articles you may want to contact Carrie. I'm sure she could produce some articles on this subject that everyone should Thank know you about
1: and only, you only, if you,
0: on. only if you pay a lot by the way <laughs> It's, it's expensive in Boston, I assume. I,
3: I would say Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God is – <laughs> if, if you want a quick hit to really get the, the mm. essence of the eternal Puritan. Or I, I, I have a mission for uh, The Education of Henry Adams is like kind of the, the
1: twilight yeah. of, of, of the That's a good people. one.
2: And Emerson obviously is I always recommend. Um, but uh, yeah, well – it was great talking with you guys.
1: Oh, wait,
0: wait, wait, sorry, 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 sorry. I, I, I had, uh, yeah, I had two things I want. Um, I wanted to clear house, where I, We, uh, closed out here. So, <laughs> Uh, first one. This should be easy question. So, uh, I think a lot a lot of times when people think, um, there are people in places like Greenwich, Connecticut, or just New York City in general that have a lot of these qualities. However, like since they're not in Boston, does that make them something else than Boston Brahmin? I, it's a stupid question, <laughs> but uh, I have to ask.
2: I mean, somewhat there was intermarriage and certain things, but I I would say generally they were different groups. Most states had their own um elites and 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 only a few states really had powerful elites um, going way back. So yeah, typically they're not the same. Um, I don't consider Boston Brahmin something that generalizes. I think you can talk about regional elites in the 19th century or something like that, but they were separate, and that's kind of the big difference. Like that, someone like I think like I think even Lind would um, talk about this um, and uh, Cota Villa and things like that. The point is in the 20th century all of a sudden you went from regional to national and that was a huge difference. You know, you had competition in them before.
0: Awesome. Okay. So the last question, it feels like there's a weird legacy of these people. So there's like movie villains or, uh, political sort of characters are often portrayed like the basic American villain is something like, uh, a Boston Brahmin. I think, I don't know. Maybe you can comment on that but everybody wants to go to, to Harvard <laughs> uh right and people like to people sure don't mind being associated with these kinds of things uh it it fe- it feels like i don't know they 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 want some of that uh some of that brahmin to rub off on them and so uh and those are sort sure of two opposing things uh i don't know like a a a madonna whore complex with the brahmin of america but what is the legacy of the Boston Brahmin in America?
2: Well, I think people perceive d- different legacies depending on, you know, their situation. I think the legacy is the cultural, and political traditions, of the institutions that have uh, that have still um, held up. As you said, people still are attracted to them. People still find them sources of power. Um, yeah, the, the fact is, whatever people, I think what the WASP mythology serves and and is the purpose it serves is to acknowledge that there has been that this power structure existed and was built by somebody and it has been there's been kind of a change um without getting into all the details of how that worked it's easier to just be like yeah there was this thing that is gone now that was kind of a jerk and I feel like that's kind of the way of dealing with it um just dealing with the whole issue of who's in charge and and what the trajectory has been and i think they're just mixed feelings with that and it's and not it's hard to explain um and map that out
0: awesome awesome so once again uh carry 62189ke.substack.com thank you it said your, your profile says you're a fan of 90s music does that include 90s country uh you know diana <laughs> carter strawberry wine brooks and dunn travis Tripp. Uh, Tim McGraw, I'm guessing
1: not.
2: A, a, a few, a few of songs, a few songs from 90s country. I'm not huge on 90s country. Tim McGraw's okay, yeah, um but I'm not huge on country. Not she likes Shania Twain. I, yeah, I did like Shania Twain. Yeah, there you go. Yep. I'm going to see her in concert in so, uh, the summer.
0: Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Well, well so so we can connect the uh <laughs> uh, uh the, the south and the north yes uh awesome thank you this has been fun
2: yes it was thank you. Their way,
1: the only way they know how